I always end up seeking back to figure out what part I missed where, where the podcast started. And then I realize <laughs> it just starts. <laughs> that is how it goes, Craig. It is. Um, so we. Uh, this is an, a great uh, thrill for me to be speaking to you. Um, Craig Federighi, Senior Vice President of Software Engineering at, uh, uh, what's the company? Uh, Apple. Apple, Apple. Yes. Um, and we are talking on the occasion of the open sourcing of Swift, which went live uh, last week. What day was it last week? Uh, it was last Thursday, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's Thursday, been Friday. huge. Yeah, yeah. It's been it was it was incredibly exciting for us. Yeah. So we're speaking as we speak. It's about a week later. So how do yes. you think this first week of Swift as an open source project has gone? Yeah, really, really well. I mean, the the level of activity on on GitHub is is off the charts. I mean, we uh, we've had really uh, high aspirations for Swift from the beginning, but at every step, it's been um, pretty amazing for us how much bigger it's gone than we could have could have ever hoped. And I think already on on GitHub, we're a more active project than I think all the other languages that are on GitHub, which is uh, just just incredible for first week. I think over sixty thousand. Um, people that have uh, taken a, a clone of the project, uh, so it's uh, it's it's pretty amazing, and uh, the the team is just uh, ecstatic over the whole thing. Yeah, there's different ways for a big company, especially a big company, to do a quote unquote open source project. There's sort of like yes, technically it's open source, but it's really just sort of a zip file with a open source license, and there it goes, you know, have at it. And then there's the actively engaging in a in a community manner with yes. the outer world and I, I so when you guys announced that wwdc swift would be open source i think there were some skeptics who thought maybe it was going to be a well technically it's open source and there it is but it, it, this is really like full throttle it fully engaged with the the world outside cupertino yeah i mean it's funny i guess there there always will be skeptics but uh, anyone who's been watching our team in the context of like the LLVM world, um, Clang, LLDB, uh, and, and our WebKit team uh, would see how, how much um, developing in the open is in the, um, the spirit of those teams. And so the, the Swift team has been among the most engaged with our developer community of any group in Apple, even, even prior to open sourcing in terms of from the first launch of uh, our announcement of Swift 1.0 in the App Store, or, I mean, at the uh, WWDC, and how much um, they were engaging with uh, all the feedback that was coming in and modifying the language right up to, to 1.0 and, uh, and, then, and then beyond. And uh, this is really an extension of how the only way they really um, have ever wanted to work. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, they, they are very excited to be working completely in the open. And uh, it really is a case where as... You know, all the features uh, in, in Swift that we'll be announcing officially to the world uh, at our next developer conference, uh, you know, you can sort of see them unfold before your eyes in the time leading up to that as they're uh, working on them in the open on uh, GitHub. Yeah, just like everything else Apple does. <laughs> it's very, very similar to everything <laughs> that, else we do. That's correct. Uh, the, the, the thing that to me is most telling, I, and I know that you know GitHub makes it easy to track all these changes and see how many people are involved, but to me, the, if you just want a quick look at 
just how much this is a, a collaboration between the Swift team at Apple and the outside world. It's the Swift Evolution mailing list, mm-hmm. where, where you know you guys have been upfront about this right from Swift 1.0 in in 2014 that this is not a finished language. We didn't you know you didn't go and finish a language and here it is have at right. it. It's right. you know we're still working on this. A lot of what we're going to be working on is tell us what what you need. And here on the mailing list, there are people actively engaging, and and employees from Apple, you know, Chris Latner and the people on his team, are fully engaging with these ideas and proposals that are coming from outside the company already. One week, you know, one week into it being an open source project. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, our. our- team is is a really seasoned team in the world of, of developing languages and and we know that uh, a language really can't be developed in a vacuum it's it is uh, a product of, of how people use it and the problems that people are trying to solve and so uh, we knew from the outset with Swift 1.0 that we could come up with the language that uh, a first step you have to crystallize your basic ideas and have a starting point uh, but we knew we needed feedback then. Uh, to work toward the the language that that ultimately Swift uh, has and has become and will become in the future, um, but that we we needed to have this kind of open open dialogue and open sourcing is as you say just really uh, accelerating and, and deepening the kind of feedback that that we're getting and so um, it's it's really energizing for us and I think it's really exciting for a lot of uh, the developers in our community as well to be a part of it. What are the other reasons to to go open source with with a new programming language? Well, you know, when when we talked about it just briefly at WWDC, I think we laid out the big ones, which which are for us, uh, Swift is we think the primary programming language that developers uh, should be taught to programming in, actually. I mean, if you're going to learn computer science, uh, Swift is a fantastic learning language. And if you're a developer who is going to invest uh, a huge part of, of your career uh, in, in mastering Swift and developing code in Swift, you're going to want the ability to use that code in every context possible. And you're going to want to use your skill in that language in all the environments in which you have to work to do your job. So whether you're you know, scripting your build system, uh, or writing um, web services, um, or of course writing your mobile applications. Uh, we want to make sure that that you can invest uh, in Swift in that way and know that it's going to be available to you uh, everywhere. And so um, we saw open sourcing as a as a critical element to make Swift reach its potential to be to be the language, the major language for uh, the next twenty years of, of programming in our industry. It's a really ambitious goal. It is. It is. But I, I think, you know, at, at every point along the way, because this, this has been our vision from before we first uh, unleashed Swift on the world, but at every step, actually, um, the reaction has uh, really uh, outdone our expectations. So uh, maybe our goal isn't so outlandish. Um, do you think that I, I would say that that for education purposes, it really has to be open source because there's really no way that a language is going to take take root as a teaching language if it's proprietary to a, a Apple platform or any other you know vendor's platform? 
Right. You know, we had a lot of uh, universities who would teach a specialized mobile programming course or an iOS programming course. And in that context, of course, um, they teach Swift. And, and Stanford has an outstanding uh, course that's on iTunes U about programming in Swift to, to program uh, on iOS. But when it comes to bringing it into the core curriculum that every student in the, the university has to take to, let's say, uh, learn computer science, making it open source, having it available to every student on whatever platform they're going to use to do their work uh, is, is uh, we, we think, ultimately a huge enabler. And uh, so many of the people we talked to, uh, the professors, wanted uh, to use the language in these ways, uh, but uh, they needed it to be open source for this to happen. And so we're, we're really excited to follow through with them on this. Uh why not open source it? What what were the downsides that were debated before you decide, you know, made the decision to go open source with it? You know, there there really weren't. The, the, you know, we of course uh, uh, talked it over uh, at length. Uh, we had a tough time coming up with a significant reason not to do it. It was more uh, a when question. You know, is is it now? And we knew after one o. That that we weren't quite there. That we wanted to get that first round of feedback, begin to stabilize the definition of the language. Uh, but as we got close to WWDC this last year, um, we realized we were where we needed to be um, to take a step that we knew was was going to happen. It was going to be this year, or it was going to be the, the following year, and uh, and we realized we were where we needed to be, uh, and so. Uh, we we moved ahead, and the, the hunger out there um, was was so great. We thought, uh, let's let's do it now. Uh, but but the downsides are are really limited. I mean, I think it's it's inevitable, but positive that Swift will be used in all kinds of contexts outside of Apple. And that's that's kind of the point. So um, that's fine. Um, it's clear we're going to get a lot of people wanting to do things with the language that aren't directly related to. Apple's line of business, and that's okay, right? That's that's actually fine as well. So uh, there just there weren't a lot of downsides, and and we think the upsides are tremendous. Um, one of the areas that I, I would I, I think it's definitely I see so much excitement about it already is um, in terms of being cross-platform is the use of Swift on servers. Yes, and, and you know a lot of that is certainly going to be Linux, and you guys have already done the port to Linux. Um, that's right, and and that's that's an area where I, I feel like we, I I have no idea. I, I feel like it's going to be used, but I just it's like we, it's so early. We don't know where that's going to be. But do you do you see that happening? That it's going to be used for a lot of server based development that's really outside Apple's platforms. Oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, from really the outset, uh, IBM, for instance, jumped all over Swift for building their their mobile apps, uh, and. Almost immediately, they were coming back to us with, "We really want to use this on the server. How can we? How can we get this on the server?" Uh, and of course, with an Apple, there's tremendous passion for Swift, and our own iCloud team has been, you know, completely chomping at the bit to be able to apply it in in many and many of the things they do. Um, so I, I think it's uh, it's going to be the first among the first kind of breakout uses of Swift. And of course, these days, so many mobile applications are part mobile app, part server code. And in a lot of cases, you, you at the very least want to share your, your knowledge, but very often you want to share 
parts of your code, parts of your model layer, some of your utility libraries. You want to, uh, and, and having uh, Swift enabling you to do that uh, is going to be huge for a lot of our community. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And I, uh, that to me is sort of the building for the future version or aspects of Swift versus, say, Objective C, which has roots from, you know, 20 or even 30 years ago. And yeah. that, uh, the, the fact that the, the cloud or whatever you want to call it, but, you know, a client software running on a device talking to servers somewhere off on the internet is part of, I would say almost certainly the overwhelming majority of apps that are being written for, for these platforms, that having a language that makes sense in both ends of the communication is huge. Well, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, if you, if you look at where I think it is for a lot of developers uh, prior to Swift, uh, they probably were using... Uh, Objective-C, if they had high-performance code they had to write, part of Objective-C is C, and so they were dropping down into C to do some of the more optimized work, which can be almost uh, a, another language. There's a real continuum there uh, within the environment. Um, they might have been using a, a scripting language uh, for part of what they do, and then they might be using a server-side language like Java. And Swift is uniquely capable of spanning from really easy and natural kind of scripting, expressive uses. It's a great application programming language, um, but it was also designed to be a great systems language and be really fast so that you can do C kind of high-performance work uh, without compromises in Swift, and then it's going to work uh, in, in the uh, cloud as well. So uh, I think it's going to really unify the environment for a lot of developers. Is that, how would you describe a systems language? Because I, I, this, is, this is right from the one of my notes here from the Swift programming language. Mm -hmm. uh, it says, Swift is intended to be, quote, the first industrial quality systems programming language that is as expressive and enjoyable as a scripting language. It's designed to scale from hello world to an entire operating system. What, what is a systems programming language? Well, there, there's, there's some, some low-level bits and, and some, some matters of... of um spirit, I think. And in terms of low-level bits, Swift has a very uh, predictable memory management model, um, a very a very contained runtime. If you look at traditional scripting languages or languages uh, like Java, um, they run garbage collectors. You really can't control uh, memory uh, in, a, in a significant way. Swift builds on our ARC technology that, that first came to Objective-C um, to provide really high performance and really predictable and manageable memory management, which means that if you wanted to write um, everything from an operating system kernel to a you know, high performance graphics library, um, you could do that without inheriting a huge per process memory footprint overhead. And you, you see that when you see how Apple's uh, OS and apps are able to run in uh, a lower memory footprint, and we're able to ship uh, devices with different memory footprints than uh, than some of our competitors who use uh, languages that don't have this characteristic. Um, but Swift is also designed so that when it can be fast, it's as fast as can be. Uh, so we aren't taking the overhead of uh, dynamic dispatch for every call, but yet we can provide dynamism uh, when when needed. Um, we can optimize. If you use an array in, in Swift, uh, we can be every bit as optimal and do auto vectorization and uh, parallelization 
in ways that you would expect from optimized C code, um, but are very hard to do if you were trying to optimize uh, Ruby or mm -hmm. Python or uh, even an Objective-C, you know, NSRA built on top of the foundation classes. And so you can go very, very uh, low level and get very predictable uh, peak performance out of your hardware. Yeah. So in other words, it's... It, 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 at least compared, let's just compare it to Objective C. That Objective C, there's so many great things we could say about it. It's served, you know, Apple so incredibly well. It still will for the foreseeable future in so many ways. But yeah. there's this big but, which is that sometimes you need to, uh, let's say, drop down into C or C plus plus, and now you're losing all of the stuff that you love about Objective-C because you need to drop down temporarily for performance reasons. And Swift, you don't need to do that. You can write the high-performance code right in Swift. That, that's right. I mean, Swift, I think one of the, when we first introduced Swift, we, we, we said we were imagining a world where we took what we loved about Objective-C without carrying forward the baggage of C. Hmm. Uh, but what that meant is Swift has to replace C in its role in Objective-C programming. Uh, and it does that really well while bringing all of these uh, higher levels of abstraction uh, and higher productivity programming techniques to writing that kind of high-performance systems code, um, but also so great for, for uh, app code. Hmm. So one thing that Swift is not, I mean, and I think we've already covered this, but it's not Objective-C with prettier, better syntax. And, and right. it's, it's the syntax of Objective-C that, that that people find off-putting, at least at first. And I know that, you know, that's a debate that, that people who love Objective-C <laughs> and have used it for decades, you know, it's a never-ending argument. But yep. at least at first, even if you really, really love Objective-C, it, it, I, I feel like you can't avoid the fact that at first it, it looks weird. Uh-huh. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll admit, I, I'm, I'm an Objective-C lover, and uh, I, I uh, you know, there were plenty of good debates internally about, you know, should we have a small talk-inspired syntax? Hmm. Uh, should we, should we uh, stick with something like Objective-C? Um, but, but it is a, uh, in the end, uh, it, it can go either way, and uh, what we were able to retain in Swift are... Uh, uh, the the sort of literate nature of APIs that Objective C enabled, the readability of code with the labeled arguments, uh, and we brought all of that to Swift, um, while at the same time having a syntax that is just much more concise. And at, at this point, with the the sort of evolution of people's expectations around programming languages, um, just much more natural for them. Hmm. Like, is is part of the thinking there that in terms of the the small talk inspired dynamic runtime that it, you didn't need a new language to do that because you already have objective C and that you can go, you know, that for the future, for the next 20 years, that that sort of, that sort of model of, of looking at frameworks and programming languages isn't the best way to go from here going forward. No, I would, I would really separate. I know it's, I would separate the, the syntax from some of the underlying aspects of the runtime and the programming model. Uh, Swift, you know, some of my favorite features from Objective-C uh, are things like protocols and uh, categories, uh, which, which in Swift are called uh, extensions. Uh, and 
those literate APIs, as well as um, uh, first class uh, classes with with class methods. You know, all of these things that were so important for us to build great APIs uh, and great extensible frameworks were were brought to Swift, along with things like um, labeled arguments. And slowly, we've also been bringing back um, much of the dynamism. Now, there's some things that are possible in Objective-C. You know, most of the dynamism that um, you, you really want is the ability to um, figure out what class is this really, to be able to cast the class dynamically to a particular uh, protocol, uh, to be able to do a, a kind of response to selector, perform selector check. Um, all of these things are possible in Swift today. Uh, and there's some other things that aren't, but that um, certainly we consider important to ultimately bring uh, bring to the language. So th- this thing about a dynamic programming model is, is still um, very important. Uh, to us now, there's some very unsafe things that people do in Objective C, and I've I've you know been guilty of this myself, where you walk the Objective C runtime and hack the method table, and um, and that's cool, um, but it is it is highly unsafe and doesn't lead to very maintainable, scalable, large programs. Some of those techniques, but the vast vast majority of what makes Objective C great and dynamic um, is is part of either part of Swift now or certainly part of our ongoing ambition for the language. But the thing we, we didn't want to bring from Objective-C is that in Objective-C, you're paying the overhead of that dynamism all the time. Uh, a, you know, you're trying to use an array or some, some class, and you've got the compiler with both hands tied behind its back in terms of opportunities for optimization. And then you're forcing the developer to then modify the way they've written their code to maybe drop down to C for something where performance matters. Um, for Swift... Because it's safer, has more type information, it gives the compiler what it needs to optimize when it can. Um, but that that alone doesn't stand in the way of all the, in my opinion, all the dynamism that matters. In in layman's terms, and I'm you know probably way more on the layman side. It's been a long time since I've programmed regularly, but mm. um, it, it it you know for people listening, I think that the big difference is that with with Objective C, what you mean, what, what, and you know, people may not even know what a runtime is, but more or less, what it means is you compile the app, it starts running, and a lot of the stuff gets decided within the app while it's running. Mm-hmm. And with Swift, by by doing these things at compile time and knowing more of the type information, forcing you to 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 be a little more specific about the type information up front, it 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 enables the compiler to do more efficient things before the app is even running because it's, it's happening at the time that the app is compiled. That's right. That's right. And then it permits all kinds of optimizations because maybe if, if the compiler can determine ahead of time that absolutely this uh, object you're about to message uh, is of a certain type and we know um, it's you've done whole module optimization and we know what the result of that uh, what that method is um, sometimes the compiler could even inline the implementation and even involve the overhead of a function call um, so uh, let alone a dynamic method dispatch and so uh, you really that's that's part of how you can get these incredible you know hand optimized C kinds of performance uh, uh, numbers out of uh, what looks uh, what what you get to write as as very high level uh, code. Uh, so so Swift I think has a, a really excellent balance there. But the key is we still have a runtime where you can um, 
look at your classes um, and and introspect them. Uh, and and there's there's more of more of that coming. <laughs> which which partly is is on an open roadmap and partly is you know in in terms of the frameworks for the operating system obviously is the sort of thing that you're not going to be able to talk about in advance because that's not the stuff that that's open source that's right i mean some of it honestly you will you will see us um bringing up uh, over the course of the coming months in the context of the open source project because certain things that that our team is um, uh, we'll, we'll take on, uh, we'll, we'll bring them forward as proposals to the open source community, and then you'll see us start to implement them. So, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to jump the gun and pre-announce everything that, that the team is, is thinking. Um, but as soon as they, uh, you know, and they've already pre-announced a bunch of the things and, you know, big, big part of the focus we wanted to make sure was clear right out of the gates with Swift was that the goal for Swift 3 was, really to stabilize the binary interface um, and to refine the APIs and finalize our API guidelines and all of those things um, because we want, uh, I think I think it's the, the next important step is to really stabilize the language and the environment uh, for, for our community. And that's a, that's a big task. One of the things that's been so great about Objective-C is it has uh, this great um, stability where uh, that have enabled us to write frameworks with binary compatible interfaces, release over release of release, something that that you know languages like C um, really couldn't get right, hmm. uh, and uh, we absolutely need to bring that to uh, to Swift. So we've we brought forward some of those goals, uh, but there are other things, of course, that will be uh, added to the three O uh, ambitions as time goes on over the coming months. Um. One of the complaints I've seen, and, and and part of this is just it, it's impossible to avoid. I think with with how early in its evolution Swift was unveiled to the world, um, but that I've what I've seen from developer friends and and just commentary on the internet is that it's hard right now to write a large scale application in Swift. Um, Apple mm. Apple has more people working on Cocoa apps than any other company in the world for obvious reasons. Right. You know, how has the feedback from the internal developers, the people, you know, the, the people who work for you, the engineers who work for you with extensive experience shipping user-facing apps shaped the direction of Swift from 1.0 to what's, what's on the roadmap for 3.0? Yeah, well, I mean... Uh, of, of course, there are elements. We have we have all all types here within Apple, right? Just like the there there are people that are uh, 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 like in the external community. Uh, objective, you know, they start out with the uh, I love Objective C. I don't want to change. To okay, hold on, maybe there's something to this Swift thing. To let me give it a try. To oh my god, I love it. Uh, and so they've they've we've we've gone through all the phases uh, internally. Um, you know, we've had some really great adoption by teams like um, the, the team that does the dock and window management on OS X, who've uh, converted, uh, uh, implemented all their new features for El Capitan in, in Swift and started mass converting uh, all of their code and say that they just couldn't imagine going back and that they're, they're more productive with it. Part, part of what our internal teams need to deal with, though, is that they're working on let's say the current version of Swift 
while it's not done yet. <laughs> and so it's, it's uh, I mean, while it's not even WWDC level done yet, right? And so, uh, and they're working on the interfaces in terms of our internal frameworks that haven't been modernized for Swift. Um, and so it can be, you know, they, they, they get it rough. They got to they gotta really love it to, uh, uh, to make that leap because they're working on a very, very bleeding edge environment when we use it internally. Um, thankfully, with, with Swift 2.0 now, um, you know, well out the door, um, that's, that's uh, stabilized things a good bit and, and they're really open to it. But uh, uh, there's, there's been just a lot of, of feedback and a lot of it has helped uh, with the impedance uh, making sure the impedance between Objective-C and Swift is is absolutely minimized because, of course, we have and will continue to have um, and continue to continue writing more uh, Objective-C code. And so the ability of Swift uh, and Objective-C a, uh, code to work together completely uh, naturally is, is a huge focus. And, uh, you know, a bunch of things like generic collections, support for, for lightweight generics in Objective-C, um, were you know big pain point internally, and uh, something that we fixed in the language, and is now great for all of our uh, all of our app developers externally. Hmm. Um, so uh, it's uh, it's been a it's been a not dissimilar road for us internally to 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 what you see outside. But in terms of Swift and 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 writing big apps, it's certainly the case that when Swift 1.0 came out. You know, heck, it didn't. We didn't support incremental compilation in, in, right. in the very first uh, update, and so that was that was going to be a limiting factor for productivity for for people that uh, had big apps. Um, a lot of that stuff has changed, and then in 2.0, having a good error handling model, um, having availability checks so you could span API versions, these sorts of things, um, I think have really addressed the vast majority of of the pain points that uh, that we were experiencing. That, I think the community was experiencing about writing larger apps, and so much about Swift is actually inherently better for building uh, big apps mm. uh, because it makes it uh, uh, handles handles modules and namespaces uh, in a way more naturally than Objective C. It makes the API contracts a, a little more clearer, the code more maintainable. So, uh, so well, we're 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 very comfortable. Objective C's namespace management was more or less let's just all agree to put unique initials <laughs> right that it's yeah it's amazing it's taken us this far but yes yes that is that's basically been the answer so yes yeah, so exactly it is you know i don't think you know i don't think you, <laughs> maybe I the bar wasn't that high exactly but we we have vaulted over it how do you manage as as the you know, chief mofo in charge of all this. How do you manage? <laughs> how do you manage the enthusiasm that you clearly have for Swift and and the what to me seems to like a sincere belief that Swift is the way forward, with the necessary conservativeness that you need. You know, so that there still has to be a lot of Objective C written. Like, how how aggressive can you be about putting teams on? Sure, go ahead and do that in Swift. You know, it's 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 really. I mean, people here are idealistic yet really pragmatic and I, I think you see that as a as an apple characteristic uh in in many many elements of of what we what we do and so um teams know with the nature of of what we're trying to get done in their area any given year the nature of their code base um whether swift is um the right answer for them or where it's the right answer um even teams where for one reason or the other, they can't jump right on Objective C, or rather, Objective C conversion to Swift. Now, 
um, they then use Swift heavily for writing all their unit tests, mm. um, which is great because then at least as they're introducing new APIs, they're experiencing their own APIs in Swift um, uh, and, and living on, you know, sort of, sort of eating their own dog food in that regard. Um, we do have some constraints internally, which, which we're addressing, but because um, we, I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, maybe, maybe there's something in, in, our, in our closet a little bit, but we, we still support running 32-bit apps on the Mac. And the 32-bit runtime um, doesn't actually support Swift right now. And uh, so what that means is if we've implemented a framework uh, that's available to 32-bit code, uh, uh, we actually can't write it in Swift. Uh, and if that code, if that framework is used across iOS and OS 10, as many of our frameworks are, um, that introduces a little stumbling block as well. So, um, you know, teams recognize what's practical and what's not practical and find ways to use Swift wherever they can. Yeah. There's no, no shortage of, of enthusiasm. <laughs> I, uh, this has been so geeky and so fun. I'm sorry about that. No, in, a, in the best possible way. Like, I, I really enjoyed. I loved. I, I saw you did a whole round of interviews last week, and I read them all, and I yeah. thought it was great. Uh, and I didn't want to cover the same ground, and I don't think we did. I think this was this is truly, truly eye opening to me, and I really, I, I certainly appreciate your time, but I really appreciate the the openness that that you've had here. Is there anything else you want to say before before we wrap up this segment? Anything else you wanted to talk about with Swift? Um, uh, I just want to say how, uh, you know, to, to, to the world, or at least the subset of the world that listens to your podcast, uh, which must be most of them, that uh, how, how proud I am of the team that's made Swift possible. Uh, you know, I mean, of course, there's Chris Latner, but he's, he's part of an incredible team with, with folks like Ted Kremenek and Doug Greger. Um, and even, you know, uh, people, Swift is, while we have our incredible compiler team, We've also got people who have uh, been writing deep frameworks and apps within Apple um, for, for, for uh, in some cases, uh, since the beginning of Next Step. Um, I mean, people like Ali Ozer, who you may know from his talks at WWDC, um, has been so vital in shaping uh, the language and how the language fits our frameworks and fits the needs of our developers. And I'm just so thrilled with the work that all of them do and the passion that they put into making Swift a success. And I just want to get that out there for everyone because uh, we're and and they're they're you know hundreds hundreds more behind them. Uh, it's been an incredible effort by our team. Uh, would you agree with this? Would, uh, I I think that Apple is in a unique position to if Swift achieves what you guys have set out to do, which is to make it like the default language that people might learn to program on for the next few decades. Apple's in a unique position to make that happen because. You have these platforms, especially iOS, but the Mac, the Watch, uh, anything else that might be coming in the future, or TVOS. TV, let's TV, not forget about the TV. Um, uh, that it, it, it are so popular and are such a draw that they've made Objective-C, you know, like the second or third most popular programming language on some of these, you know, the lists of yeah. you know, what books people mm -hmm. buy, which I think to someone like you who's been, you know, started in the next days, you know, if you would have found out that in the year 2015, Objective-C is the second most popular language, you'd be like, what? I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah, right. I would not have believed it. A language that there's some initial reluctance of people to, uh, you know, to get on board with. Now there's this language that is so approachable. And and really almost has like at a syntax level, you know, and, and when you're talking about like hello world type stuff, really almost looks like pure pseudocode. 
Yeah. Uh, that Apple is in a unique position where the draw is there with the platforms uh, to really, really make this explode in popularity. Yeah, I, I mean, well, I couldn't, couldn't say it any better. I, I think uh, we, we, when we created Swift, we, while we wanted it, of course, to be a, a great language, we also, from the outset, wanted it to be a great language for, for our platforms. And the fact that it and, and embody the lessons that, that we learned from creating um, so many deep frameworks and great apps over so many years. And what that's meant is, on day one, Swift was what, what it wasn't a restart for the community. It wasn't a hey, well, let me learn a whole new set of frameworks. Let me wait for Apple to create a whole new set of frameworks. Swift has been this this automatic transition for people who wanted to uh, maybe who were new to our platform and wanted to get started. The whole world was open to them on our platform there, and I think that's been so huge to driving. Uh, the energy around it. And then others have been drawn in just by the greatness of Swift as it is. I mean, it's amazing, these Swift language conferences where people talking about different functional programming paradigms and Swift and all these different things you can do with the language just based on what an amazing new language it is. So you bring those two communities together and uh, it's it's magic right now. Hmm. Thank you so much, Craig. Um, I really appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you, John. It's an honor to speak with you. So. Uh, thank you so much. Where's Craig? Did I miss him? <laughs> you know what? Since that ran as the first segment, um, I might as well just jump right into a sponsor read, which I was definitely not going to do in the middle of talking to Craig Federighi. He totally should have. He would have just sat there patiently. <laughs> he was, I feel like I could have done anything. He was uh, incredibly gracious. He was uh, absolutely... I mean, I expected him to be nice, but he's, you know, very nice. Um, let me tell you about our good friends at uh, Casper. You guys know Casper. They're the company whose URL uh, I frequently get wrong, and I won't today. Um, these guys make obsessively engineered mattresses, and they sell them at incredibly fair prices. Um, just the right sink, just the right bounce. You don't have to sit there and go through their website and pick uh, three different types of mattresses. Do you want springs? Do you want memory foam? Do you want uh, latex foam? No, these guys are mattress experts. They're like the Apple of, of mattresses where they figured it out themselves, and they sell one type of mattress. It's their own custom uh, blend of latex foam and memory foam that has just the right sink, just the right bounce. Um, so you don't have to worry about that. All you do is pick what size, what size you want. You want you want to do what do you want? You want a queen size, you want a king size, you want a twin size, whatever you need. That's what you do. You go to the website, you order it, comes to your house in a little box, put it in a room where you want it, you open it up, and it makes a noise and it just soaks up the air, and there it is. Now you say, I don't want to buy a mattress without trying it. It's risk-free. You get a hundred days to try sleeping on this on your actual bed in your actual house. Hundred days. And if you don't like it, it's painless return. You just go to their website, tell them you want to you, you want to send it back. They'll take care of. They'll send somebody to your house and get this mattress out of your house. Um, couldn't be easier. There's no hard sell if you decide to send it back. Um, could not be easier. Mattresses they're made in America, and the prices are unbelievable. Five hundred bucks for a twin size mattress, up to nine fifty for a king size mattress. If you've shopped for a premium king size mattress in the last few years. You know how great a price point that is. I, th I think it's e fair to say that that's about half the price that you would pay for a premium mattress at like a 
retail mattress store. So really, really great. Could not be easier. You don't have to go to the store. You don't have to get this mattress home. You don't have to wait. It's, it couldn't be easier. Where do you go to find out more? Let me get this right. Casper.com slash talk show. Casper.com slash talk show. If you want to get a mattress and talk about great holiday gift ideas, boy, buying somebody a mattress is about as good as it gets. Put one under the Christmas tree. Use that URL and you will save 50 bucks off uh, any of those prices I just told you about. So go get your kids new mattresses for uh, Christmas at Casper.com. So here's the deal. So people are probably wondering, how did uh, Craig Federighi end up on the talk show? And what happened was uh, Apple got in touch with me when they started doing the, uh, um, I guess it was a couple days actually before Swift, the open source thing was actually announced. And when they started reaching out to the press, um, they asked whether I'd be interested in having him on the podcast. And I was like, uh, yeah. You <laughs> uh, just said, let me check. Let me check my schedule. I don't know. We might, might, Maltz might be on that week and I can't bump him. <laughs> I was like, hell yeah. Um and so, uh, no real ground rules. You know, it, it was very similar to to when I, Phil Schiller was on the live show back at WWDC. It wasn't like they they wanted questions in advance or anything like that. Uh, their only request was, you know, that it be limited to you know somewhere around twenty minutes. So I, th- I think the fact that we went about thirty or thirty five minutes was probably pretty good for me. So you've learned a two x multiply and multiplier is acceptable in their time limits. Well, I did. I was absolutely watching the clock while we talked, and it felt like when we were rolling up around 20, it really felt like he was having a good time. He was very comfortable. And I think that was definitely, you know, Apple PR's concern would be, you know, they want to limit his exposure in case it was not comfortable, which I think is reasonable. Yeah, I wonder if they would have cut you off. Like, not that you want to run that experiment, but they actually <laughs> I, said, you know, uh, we got to wrap this up or you yeah, know, no more questions. Probably. Because, uh, you know, Bill Evans from Apple PR was was listening in. Uh, he was there. Um, so I, I would suspect that if I went nuts and just kept him hanging, he probably would have texted me or something like that. <laughs> it was like, a, hey, come on. Would have been friendly. Yeah, we're just talking about open sourcing Swift. I, mean, I don't know how bad it could get, right? You're just talking talking about programming, right? A couple of nerds having a conversation. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on the interview because, and this is really, you know, I, I'm telling you right now, you were my, is this the right term? You were my spirit animal going into the interview. I thought, okay, I've only got 20 or 30 minutes. <clears throat> In my mind, if I, if, if I can make Syracuse half happy with this interview, then I'll consider my job well done. Well, that type of interview is tough, I think, because so you've got Craig making the rounds to the tech press to talk about open sourcing Swift. You know, essentially what his job is uh, doing that press tour it's to it's to tell everyone how great it is that Apple's doing this thing. Right. Well, um, twofold. I, I would say twofold. First, it's to tell everybody how great Swift is. And then second is how great it is that they're making it open source. Right, but like his his job on that press tour is not to do what I think a lot of people might want out of an interview, uh, whether it be podcast or text, which is especially programmers, and especially the direction that you took your interview with Craig, getting more technical and everything, is people want to have, not in a mean way, but in a sort of uh, Usenet old-style way, an argument about programming with, <laughs> with a guy who is in charge of a really big platform that a lot of people program for. Like the, not like a, like I said, not like a mean one, but you want to d- debate whether, I don't know what you want to, you just want to talk to the guy who's in charge. Now, finally, I get to sort of 
uh, you know, complain about square brackets or tabs versus spaces or my pet peeve in Swift or the App Store or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that's more pronounced with Apple people because Apple has in the past tended not to make the important decision makers, especially the important technical people, available to the public in any way. So there was no other venue for you to, uh, you know, air your grievances. It's like you got to talk to the people who were the most polished in the highest level. And if your concern was about some minor feature of some framework or API and you couldn't corner someone in a hallway at WWDC, you, there was no venue for that. So I think, um, I mean, that's changing now, as, as you discussed in the interview. But uh, a lot of people might go into this thinking that they're going to hear like they want it to be more adversarial, but like it's I think a I think it's impossible to be adversarial with Craig because he's the nicest person in the universe, and if if he ever yells at people in meetings, you would never know it from seeing anything he does in public. He seems just like a super nice guy, enthusiastic and upbeat and positive all the time. So you're not going to have that with him. And b that's not the purpose of the press tour. So it's a waste of time for you to do that. Um, you, you should use that time much more valuably to engage in interesting conversation uh, that's still on topic. And I think you did that. Yeah, it's the same way I approached the interview with Schiller, where it's there were definitely questions that, in theory, I would like to ask. Like, if I could get them on the stand under oath and make them answer questions, there are very interesting questions that I would like to ask that if I did ask and they weren't under oath, that I don't think they would answer. And I don't want to waste time on questions that they're not going to answer. So, for example, I'm not going to try to pick Federighi's mind about, uh, you know, whether they need a new kernel to have like a real-time operating system for the car <laughs> because yeah, that's not going to be a fruitful avenue of conversation <laughs> exactly and, I, and and in addition to the fact that he obviously isn't going to answer that and he can't talk about it and even if i wanted to get cute and say you know theoretically of course you know but you know that there's these real-time considerations for something like a car that you don't have with these consumer devices like phones and blah 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 He's not going to get into it. And the second thing, in addition to wasting precious time, is I feel like asking questions like that would immediately raise their shields. Like, wow, he just asked a stupid question that I can't answer. Now I've got to be careful that I that he's not going to, you know, I, I want them to feel like, hey, this is going well. And it's they're not necessarily softball questions, but that they're questions that I the sort of thing I was hoping to talk about. Yeah, and the thing is, in this in this particular realm, specifically in the open source effort, we've seen through their actions that they are being much more open with Swift and the open source effort than they have ever been before in terms of telling you what they're going to do in the future and having public roadmaps and doing development in the open. Uh, you, you kind of brought this up in the interview with like uh, how Swift's development is out in the open and, and, he, and Craig said how LVM was and everything, but the contrast that you could have, uh, you know, maybe this would have put them on the defensive is the contrast is something like, the uh, the Darwin open source releases and Darwin right. has been open source from the beginning, but it just hasn't been developed in the same way. And maybe it can't be for a variety of reasons because it's just too much proprietary stuff revealing their plans for you know whatever uh, devices and stuff they're they're going to make in the future. Um, but they they're so much more open, and he was more open here, saying, "Oh yeah, we're going to add these features, and this is we're going to you know uh, we're going to have more things like this by the time WWDC rolls around." When has any Apple? They wouldn't even tell you if they're going to have a new battery charger in time. <laughs> you know, they didn't tell you anything about the future. Not that he was promising specific things, but just sort of in the vague sort of this is kind of what we're thinking, kind of what we're planning, because I think it's understood, especially within the realm of this open source thing. It's like you can see it happening. Like if it's if it's not available at WWC, it won't be a mystery why. You'll see every single check-in, every single debate on the mailing list. And when WDC comes around, it'll either be ready or it won't. 
And when everyone can see that, no one's going to be like, you promised this thing by WWC and we still can't do it. Why are you, you know, it's like, well, just look at the mailing list. Look at the source code. Uh, it didn't get done or there was debate about how it should be done or whatever. It just, so having right. that stuff in the open just makes it so much easier to have those conversations. There, there are no gotchas. It's like just you can watch it happening. It's not magic. Right. It's not like, okay, it's early December as promised before the end of the year, we've made this thing open source. Here's a zip file, you know, with all the source and there's a, a you know, an Apache or whatever, whatever license, what are they licensed that they're using? I think it's Apache, Apache. 2.0. Um, yeah. They're using, the, you know, it's got an open source license to have at it. And here's where we plan to, here's our roadmap for the for Swift 3.0. And then they go into radio silence. And then early June at WWDC, we find out whether that matched or not like you said from he, the point from here to there every single day there are going to be these debates i mean to me the i mentioned it in the interview that the swift evolution mailing list is remarkable because you really have to like look at the email addresses to see who's from apple and who's not because there's really serious and very thoughtful proposals coming from outside apple and it's very clear that uh, people inside apple are giving them their full consideration it is truly a, a collaborative uh relationship right you know eight days into it yeah definitely I, i'm assuming it will it will calm down a little bit as the volume has been tremendous i i had to switch to the digest form of that mailing list because it was just filling my you know email in by even though i'm filtering into a folder it was just too many emails in a day so I said, let me just try taking the digest yeah. version of it. but like I'm, I'm assuming the traffic will die down a little bit but yeah you're right it used to the old model with the open source like darwin was it was the big one where they give you a big dump and then i don't know how many people even contributed or even could contribute um, and then you wouldn't, you wouldn't see anything from them until the next major version. Like, I think just the other day, they finally put out the El Capitan version of the, uh, Darwin open source stuff. And so if they'd come out with this big source dump, even if they had been accepting like feedback, if you didn't see anything from Apple until WWDC, it would just be like, like the typical write only sort of black hole for information. Like they'd have discussions with you and you could say things, but you never knew what Apple was going to do. And you just have to sit around and wait and wait and wait. And then at June, there'd be a bunch of slides and people would applaud or not. Mm. Here, uh, it, it all happens in real time in front of you. I guess the open question is still how often do the people at Apple push their changes back up to the repository? How much development? But that's true of any open source thing. You can you can have your your local clone of a repository and do a bunch of changes to it and not push them back up to the main repository for a while. Um, to some degree, there has to be development going on in Apple that doesn't immediately get pushed out to the public. I mean, I don't know if there's a vetting process involved in that or just the internal coordination of deciding in their particular, what, what they're going to do versus what the community is doing. I'm sure they'll navigate it just fine, uh, but it's just like any other open source thing. If there does come a point where the community wants to pull Swift heavily in one direction, and Apple wants to pull it in another, you could end up with a fork, but we're so far from that now. Now everyone is kumbaya and everyone's excited to be working on Swift and Swift is this one thing and Apple is clearly in the driver's seat having invented it and having the platform where it's most useful. So I think things will be smooth sailing uh, as smooth as they can be in open source for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and I think it, 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 must help in a certain degree that just about every programming language I know of, and certainly all the ones people are passionate about, have somebody who, you know, was the dictator in charge who invented it and, and infused it with their personal, you know, here's what I think this programming language should be like. It, you know, all the great programming languages, to me, I, I think, have this opinionated root. 
or origin. And Chris Latner is obviously that individual with Swift. And I think it's very clear, both publicly and from what I've heard privately, that it was what has happened was always his intention that it would go open source and that it wouldn't, you know, and it's not like it took this long because there was a debate internally. It really was what what Craig said in the interview, which was didn't make sense to go open source right out of the bat. We had to make, you know, it's still too liquid, you know, wait till it solidifies a little bit. And then at that point, you know, it was just a ma- not a matter of if, but when I think was his exact words. And I think it really helps that Latner was on board with that from the beginning in terms of wanting to have this sort of, it's not like it's not like somebody else at Apple is forcing him and his team to participate in this. Well, that's the the unspoken part of that is like, all right, so it di- it didn't make sense to go because two point was too new. Why would it be bad? Obviously, pre one point is like you have a secret, and the typical mm-hmm. Apple, I'm keeping a secret, and so I can come to WWC and say we have a new programming language. So pre one you can or you know pre announcement you can say that's the reason it's not open source because it was a secret and we didn't even know if we could do it and we had to decide internally and so that makes sense once everybody knows swift is a thing why is it not open source at that point uh and it's like oh well, it's too new we're not ready we really need to work it out why why do you need to work it out why can't you work it out when it's in the open why does it have to be closed source while you're working these things out and i would say that swift right now is still by the standards of most other mature programming languages, still heavily in flux. I mean, for crying out loud, they're they're ripping out plus plus and minus minus at this point and thinking about what they're going to do with like, you know, people are proposing new keywords. Like this is incredibly liquid. So why why was it closed source uh, between uh, the announcement and now? And the answers to that are pretty obvious. Like they don't think they need to say them because people basically know supporting an open source project has overhead. Right. Like you can work, you can go much faster when you don't have to worry about other people's input. That sounds bad, and that's like, oh, you're being. But like, there is a lot of overhead, especially for a company like Apple in terms of uh, intellectual property and making sure there's a dividing line between what's open and what's not. Um, it's a lot of work to do all the things that are required to be a good maintainer of an open source project, and they just you know, it would have made them go slower, right? So now they're at the point where the trade-off is worth it, that they're they're okay with going a little bit slower. Now, of course, the, the input is a little bit more valuable because in that beginning part, so much basic stuff didn't work. Like, I mean, Craig mentioned that you have in- incremental compilation. It was like, you just, you just want it to hold together, right? <laughs> like, is, right. is this feasible at all? Can we ship something? Can we get it working enough in Xcode so like the playgrounds don't crash all the time, right? Uh, you know, that's that's basically i would assume the the answer that wasn't given there is that uh it's not like they and and of course the internal debate which is not going to tell you about the details of the internal debate but uh well yeah that you can go much faster when you don't have to worry about the outside world's opinions or input and you don't have to support them and you don't have to maintain uh you know a source repository with clean source code and a mailing list and all the other things that go with that yeah i think it's sort of a one two like a two-step process. Like first step was Swift 1.0. This is good enough to show you guys and let you guys start playing with, even though, let's face it, you can't start working with it yet. We'll get it into a shape where it's, you know, you can start using it. And I, I've been asking around and I do, there are, you know, it's not just in Apple. There are, you know, real developers at real, you know, uh, apps that, you know, people out there, you know, top apps, <laughs> to, to borrow a phrase from Raiders of the Lost Ark. There are top apps that have new parts of it, you know, maybe not entirely written in Swift. That's probably still very rare. But new features are being written in Swift in real apps, you know, that you're using today. Um, but I think stage two is, this is where I think Latner and his team think, 
we had this this vision for where, what we would start with, and we're not there yet. And this is the point where there's this the fundamental aspects of the language we're we're settled on now, and now we're willing to start listening to how we can make it better to suit your needs. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I think the language is just so young for in, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, it you know, I, if you want to do it like human analogy, like I mean, maybe it can sit up now. <laughs> Like it's not, it doesn't need to be held in one of those big tube things. Like it can sit up occasionally, it toddles over, it falls over a little, but it can sit up. But this, this is like uh, the best and the worst part uh, because it's kind of like uh, there's so much potential. Uh, but uh, Craig talked about Swift 3.0 and how they're really working on getting the ABI nailed down and everything. And that's just got to be terrifying because you know the standards of binary compatibility that Apple aspires to, like with Objective-C. I think Marco has brought this up on ATP a few times. Like you could have built an iPhone app for the original iPhone. And and in theory, if you stayed to, uh, you know, still well-supported APIs, that binary would still run. Like right. they don't, Apple is not in the habit of breaking uh, backward compatibility for binary libraries and everything that frequently, which is surprising for a company that is so gung-ho about, uh, moving on from the past in hardware design and software design they're really good about that and so nailing that stuff down like that like 3.0 is not that far away and it's like boy you really only get one shot at at doing this right because there's not going to be another 64 to 30 32 to 64 bit transition for them to use to paper over like they did with like you know the objective c stuff where they're like well when we're going 32 64 it's going to break anything anyway so now is our chance to do something a little bit differently there's not going to be a 64 to 128 transition in the foreseeable future so they really have to get their ABI, uh, something that doesn't have some terrible mistake that ties their hands in the future, um, and that is supportable for for literally decades. And right. Or maybe not, if it's not a mistake, it's like not like missing some sort of thing that everybody thinks is okay today, but five, six, seven years ago from now, everybody thinks, oh man, that's it would be so great if we didn't have that, if we weren't stuck with that decision. Or there's going to be some language feature that that is much more difficult to support with the ABI as it's designed. Or, you know, I'm even just going to say, oh, well, it doesn't, you know, the, the way quantum computers work in 50 years is different than now. But even just like you decide there's a particular language feature that they're like, we don't have time. for. It, concurrency is a great example in the Swift 3.0, like Swift evolution uh, mailing list and, and roadmap or whatever. They're like language level concurrency. Uh, it's not, not planned for 3.0. We don't have time for it. It's too big a feature. We're going to save that as post 3.0. But they're going to have the ABI nailed down. Right. So I really hope there's nothing about, you know, uh, language level concurrency features that would be easier to do with a different API. Not that it's going to preclude them doing this. And I'm assuming, like, based on past experience, that they're looking for an ABI that would really, really solid. But thus far, everything until now has been a communication from, from Apple about Swift is, and we're going to break your crap all the time. Uh, we're, we are not maintaining source compatibility. We're, we're adding keywords. We're removing things. We're, we're changing how operators work. And, and their solution to this has been like, we're going to use Xcode to translate your old code to your new code right. for you, but we're not going to support your old code. Like just forget it. Um, because they're, too, they don't want to be held back by the past. It's kind of the nightmare of, you know, come out with a language and then let literally thousands of developers start writing real applications with it and shipping them to customers. And then be like, oh my god, we can never change this part of the language because so many people have all this code out there. Like we just we we set it out to loosen the world. Now we can never take away plus plus and minus minus. It'll break everyone's apps. And Apple's like, no, we reserve the right to change this how this language looks on the page to make your source code that you think is perfectly good syntactically invalid, so it won't even compile. 
And the way we're going to manage that is by giving you tools to translate your source code. Yeah, that's one of my favorite changes in the, I guess it's the, it just came out in the Swift evolution or maybe the new version of Swift that they released as they open sourced it, where they got rid of these plus plus and minus minus operators. Um, and I, again, just to take a, a big step back, and I read the interviews that Federici did with like Mashable and a few other outlets last week. I was half happy and half worried because I was happy because his interviews with like Ars Technica and and Mashable covered the basics, you know, and it was like a foundation of what Apple's official stance was towards this open sourcing of Swift. And I thought that means I don't have to waste time talking about those things with him and we can go deeper. But then I thought, what if that's all he wants to talk about is this? He doesn't want to get nerdy at all. And I was like, because I, I kind of want some of this stuff to be a little technical. But then... It, it, the way the interview went, there's absolutely no problem getting them to go technical. I just worry now that maybe it's a little bit over over people's heads for, for everybody who listens to the show. And so just here's one example. I don't want to over-explain, but the, the plus, plus, minus, minus operators are one that's very easy for even a non-programmer to understand. And in every language, geez, I, I, I know since C, you've been able to take a variable. Let's say the variable is X. And if X is an integer, and it's currently equal to four. If you write in your source code X plus plus, um, that turns the variable to five. It just adds one to the to the variable. And I've never really given a lot of thought to it, uh, but like it seems like every language, just about every C style syntax language since has taken that and kept it. Um, and Swift had it, and then in the the where we're going, it was like we're going to get rid of it. And here's why. And I thought the explanation for why was terrifically cogent. You know, it was like, yeah, that's that's sort of like unreadable. And you can it would be a lot easier if you just set, you know, X plus equals one so that you know it's adding one to it. So there's the the nuance of post uh, post decrement and pre decrement where you can have plus plus X versus X plus plus, which means different things in a lot of different languages, including C. Right. Py Python, by the way, doesn't have plus plus or minus minus. Um, and this is a great example of a language feature that they're changing based on a proposal for essentially cultural reasons, cultural and like human factors reasons, mm -hmm. not not technical, not like performance or interoperability with Objective C or the but but or the ability to do something that you previously couldn't do. This is purely uh, it's user interface for programming languages. Essentially, it, right. uh, it's a, does this construct cause more problems than it solves. Uh, how much longer is plus equals one versus plus plus? Pre and post, it's really easy to get rid of that because that is very confusing. But you're like, well, yeah, plus plus and minus minus are just, you know, so common, as you noted, in so many other languages. Wouldn't we keep that just because it's an idiom that people are familiar with? And then the debate, uh, if you can look through this in the mailing list, was like, well, in what context do you find yourself wanting to do that? Well, when I do a for loop and I say, you know, I equals zero, I less than whatever, I plus plus, uh, and then the swift answer is, well, we don't want people doing those kind of loops. We want to have uh, a way to iterate over collections more naturally. So if we say you don't have to do a, a classic style for loop, when do you think you're going to use the plus plus? Uh, you know, and so that's how this debate goes. And this is the level they're talking about. That's why I say this is a the little baby that can barely sit up at this point, because they're still considering fundamental things like how many fingers should this baby have? Right. Yeah. And, you know, is it going to be a biped? Right. Or should it have fur or not? Like that's that's the level they're they're debating uh, at this point and i think it's wonderful because the worst thing in the world that can happen is for the very early decisions made by a very small group of people not exposed to the wider world to become cemented and become unchangeable and to say 
this is it and we can't change this because it's too late because too many people are programming it. Because unless you get everything perfect on your first try, which you never, ever will, all you're doing is like baking in the warts. You know, mm -hmm. it's nice for the language to have time to grow and change and make mistakes and learn from them and become a different language eventually than it was this year or last year. Yeah. Um, to take another step back, just, just in a little uh, uh, glossary as we go for non-programmers, the ABI, the binary, um, app, what is it? What does ABI even stand for? Application, Application binary, binary interface. Right. That is effectively, so source code is in a text file. You write your Swift in a text file, it goes into the compiler, and the compiler turns it into the binary output. So the dot app, the, the little actual executable inside the dot app bundle, that's the binary. Or if it's a framework or a library, it's the compiled code that the machine reads natively. And what they're promising is that Swift 3.0, which is scheduled for, I think they say late 2016, which I sort of interpret, I read between the lines, Mac OS 10, 10.12, probably, um, and iOS 10. Um, that it's good, you know, at that from that point forward, that binary interface is going to be compatible with future versions, you know, Swift 4, with Swift 5, Swift 6 going forward. And there, like you said, that's, you know, high stakes to commit to that. Yeah. And it's most important uh, for someone like Apple who makes a bunch of libraries that they ship with their machines. And, and your binary needs to know how to call into those libraries and how, how, to, how to call the functions, how to find the functions and how to call them, how to present the arguments to those functions, expect where to get the return value from, all those uh, little details uh, that are right now have been in flux. And they have to nail them down so that uh, you'll ship your binary, they'll ship their libraries, and then they'll come up with a new version of the OS. And if you don't revise your application, you want it to still work. You don't have to recompile it every time that, you know, that's what, if they change the ABI, it would mean that people would have to recompile their stuff. And, and like I said, historically speaking, Apple has not done that on iOS and has rarely done it on OS 10. Uh, and 32 to 64-bit transitions are a great time to require that because you're like, well, your 32-bit application will keep working, but eventually we're not even going to support, you know, 32-bit uh, Macs anymore. So we're just going to be 64-bit from now on, and your application will just age out of the ecosystem if you don't update it. And if you do update it, hey, guess what? You got to recompile anyway, so no big deal. What was the gist of what Craig was talking about there with the... Um... It was something about what I, when I was asking where they're using Swift internally, and one of the things that they where that it's holding them up and can't they can't just switch to Swift is that they need to they still need to support 32 bit on Mac OS 10. Yeah, I couldn't tell whether that was just uh, a sly allusion to the fact that 32 bit support is going away everywhere, uh, that it hasn't, you know, any any remaining holdouts of 32 bit support will be disappearing. And they've been doing that over the years, just going 64 bit everywhere they possibly can. It's just where they can stop supporting entirely. Uh, the other option is there's no reason they can't make Swift work with the 32 bit things. Like right. They, right now, Swift is 64 bit only, though. Yeah. Is that correct? I mean, uh, as far as I know, yeah. And right. like, there's no reason they couldn't make it work with 32 bit. Like, uh, you know, nope, sure, they could, but is it worth it? So it's just a question of uh, are they just shutting that door? And when is it safe for them to shut that door? And, uh, you know, in terms of backward compatibility, even like all, you know, with the iOS devices going 64 bit, you can still run 32 bit apps on them, but you don't want to have both 32 bit and 64 bit apps running on your device at the same time because then you got to load two versions of all the libraries into memory and everything. So there are lots of good reasons to just forget about 32 and, like I said, just let it age out of the ecosystem. That's what I would imagine Apple would do. Um, but he's talking about the past uh, in terms of like, Here, what what was holding people back. Here's where it would really help if we had a chat room 
<laughs> but I, because a question that has just popped into my head now, and I therefore did not do any research before the show, is, I, and I'm guessing this is true, I'm guessing watchOS is 64-bit only, and tvOS almost certainly is 64-bit only. There's absolutely no reason why th- tvOS would have 32-bit support, since the first device that tvOS runs on is a 64-bit device. So on tvOS, and I'm guessing watchOS, it's probably possible to go swift you know use swift for the the frameworks and libraries in the operating system i don't even know that you're right it would be good to have a, a chat room i don't even know what uh other oh, no, the apple knew have to use a a eight all right and the, the first 64 bit was a seven yeah um yeah like i like i said i would imagine the way forward is to for apple not to waste its time on 32-bit, but who knows? Like, it depends on which roadmap. Like, if you graph those things out and say, when can we finally jo- drop 32-bit support? Both practically speaking and, like, politically speaking, not annoying our partners or whatever um, who made, like, 32-bit games for iOS and don't want to, like, rebuild them for 64. When can we do that? When is it safe? And then the other question is, when do we want to really start ramping up on Swift? Now, Swift needs to ramp up before 32-bit goes away. Uh, maybe you have to put in the work to do 32-bit support, but it totally seems like the Apple move to just be like, Swift is going to hasten the demise of anything supporting 64-bit. Yeah, it just seems to me that anything new from when, like, at least from when the A7, what was that, the 5S shipped. Yeah. From that point forward, it just seems like anything that doesn't have legacy support is 64-bit only. So, you know, from both from new platform perspective, like watch and TV, to Swift itself, that, you know, if it's a new language that came out in... uh, 2014 why in the world would it have 32 bit support it's you know anchored to the past yeah and the same thing for new frameworks if they're writing new frameworks using swift swift only frameworks swift native frameworks how they're they're rewriting foundation in swift you know like but but for new stuff where there is no there is no non-swift version of this library it's just it's been swift from day one it's a brand new library maybe it's a big new library that's going to be a tentpole feature of a future wwdc and they're going to tell people how to use it if it's Swift only and Swift doesn't do 32 bit, no 32 bit app can use this thing unless they're again unless they're gonna bend over backwards to do some crazy way for the you know the libraries to bridge from 32 to 64. But yeah, I, I just think it's all 64 uh, going forward. And and what he was giving you a glimpse in is things that Apple had already gone through. Right. Like why aren't it, why isn't everybody using Swift? Well, Swift is really young. Swift doesn't support 32 bit. These are all reasons that teams that inside Apple that may be interested in Swift couldn't use it because it just wasn't practically doesn't wasn't practical at that point but it becomes more practical every day i really i thought one of the most astute things he said was uh here i'm looking at my transcript here i mean people here are idealistic yet really pragmatic and i think you see that as an apple characteristic in many many elements of what we do and i really do think that i think that it's almost idealistic yet really pragmatic gets to the heart of what i like best about apple you know in the long run and overall and i feel and i feel like that really exemplifies it in terms of sure we're really excited about swift and it'd be fun to be writing more but we've got to write an awful lot of new stuff still in objective c for these very very pragmatic reasons yeah and this is the overarching like you may be excited about swift but there's sort of a company cultural uh imperative to for example not break binary compatibility without a good reason Mm. because it's bad for the platform um and if there's any possible way you can avoid it like it's 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 bad for the ecosystem it makes developers angry uh and 
you you just you only get a certain number of those and you don't want to like cash them in on just on a whim right so even though a lot of people may be very excited about using this new technology if there's an overriding concern you know larger than your little project larger than your little feature or your application or whatever it is you're doing inside apple and the dictate is uh you can't use it because you need to support 32-bit and you need to support 32-bit because we're committed to not breaking binary compatibility until a big company-wide decision happens at a, at a level way above your pay grade and only then will it be okay so like the idealistic and pragmatic as an organization yes but like within the organization i imagine it's distributed where the lower you go down in the org chart, the more people are inclined to be idealistic and want to do something crazy and new. And the higher you go in the org chart, the more people have to be pragmatic and say, there's a bigger picture here. And even though you may be excited to use it on your little project, uh, we decide at the top when it's time to do these big moves that are going to impact, again, literally thousands of developers and thousands. Is it millions of apps? I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> it might be. I don't even know. It's kind of bizarre to think about a million apps, but it's possible. Um, one of the areas I wanted to get to, and, I, and when I found out, it was nice. One of the things that was nice about this interview was that I knew about it at least a week in advance. It was actually a little bit more than a week in advance by the time you know we found a, a date that worked for both of us. Um, and so I, I felt like I had plenty of time to prepare, which was great. And so one of the ways that I prepared it was I went to people who know a, a lot more about programming than I do, and specifically a lot more about programming for Apple platforms than I do. Um, and, you know, tried to get some questions from them. And one of the things that I asked about, but it's, you know, the, and I knew this, but I was interesting hearing it from developer friends is this whole angle that Swift is not just Objective-C with a modern friendly syntax. It is a very different language with very different um, primary priorities. Um, and there are certainly some things, it certainly looks better and it certainly is a much more approachable syntax. And I feel like at a fundamental level, that's basically why there's so much excitement around Swift is there's a lot of people who uh, just took one look at or take one look at Objective-C and they're like, I don't get it. And then they take a look at Swift and they're like, wow, that looks like the language I already know, whether it's JavaScript or you know, C or I don't know, even even Java to some degree, maybe, you know, it's a lot more similar to those style languages than it is to Objective-C. Um, but there are things about Objective-C and the way that the next now Cocoa and Cocoa Touch frameworks, you know, all these things that have derived from, from the next origins, the way that these frameworks take advantage of the dynamic aspects of Objective-C that people who are really good at it, people who've been writing for these frameworks for a long time, love and Swift is sort of isn't really what they were looking for in a next generation language. And I thought his answer to that surprised me. I thought, well, I, I mean, it was it was on message in terms of like the dynamic things that people wanted to do with Objective C will eventually be possible with Swift if they're not now, and that this is an ongoing thing, and they're working on it, yada yada, and essentially. All, all the dynamism, which is a word that he likes to use, all the dynamism that that uh, that Apple thinks is important will be available in Swift without the downsides that he also went over extensively. Like that you've got to pay for that all the time. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And I thought it was, um, I'm not sure. I, I guess I kind of was worried that he would dodge that question. And instead, it seemed like he dove right into it. And it's obvious, so obvious from his answer that they have discussed this internally extensively. Well, this is an interesting time for Swift because 
a lot of things that have been true of Swift from the beginning are now starting to come more into the public consciousness, mostly because more people are using it, more people are aware that it even exists. As excited as we all were, whatever it was two years ago, to see Swift at WWDC, um, it's not really a thing for people, broadly speaking, until, you know, at a certain point, like, can I actually use this to make iOS and Mac apps? Okay, then it becomes one level of thing. And then the open source is the next level. It's like, hey, this is maybe of interest to the entire world of programmers, right? And so now a lot of people are looking at Swift and they're going to, I think, start realizing things that have been true about Swift from the very beginning. You mentioned the syntax thing, which is kind of a sideshow because uh, the syntax is, you know, even though it's a thing that people notice when you look at it and it, there is a certain... Uh, I don't know, like a uh, like a flavor. Like you can tell, does this feel like a modern thing or does this feel old and weird? Is, does it look like, you mentioned, like does it look like JavaScript? Does it look like whatever language the kids are learning these days, right? But that is uh, mostly uh, not important. Uh, I mean, there's some aspect where you have to sort of keep up with the Joneses and not look like you're really old. Um, but then the other aspect of it in, in terms of the language itself is how many things do I have to worry about? And Objective-C asks developers to worry about things used to before arc asked them to, to worry about memory management where they had to call retain and release and to a modern young programmer that just seems barbaric because like i said they'd be coming from uh you know uh i guess javascript is a great example because a lot of people know web stuff and javascript is everywhere but even things like uh, c sharp or java on the server it just seems barbaric to have to deal with that or to have direct access to memory with pointers and then Arc made that a little bit better, but still, like, what are all these asterisks all over the place? It doesn't really make any sense. I don't know. Uh, you know, if you don't know C, I think, uh, you know, a surprising number of developers now find that they are, that, you know, if you're a, a, a GUI application developer, the reasons for you to know C to figure out how to make a sheet come up when someone pushes the button, <laughs> like, there's not a lot of those. And it just seems like, why do I have to worry about all this crap? So from the developer's perspective, Swift is exciting because it's like, I want to make an iOS app because iOS apps are cool and I like iPhones and all this other stuff. But it's kind of annoying that I got to worry about all this stuff. And Swift says, now you don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. And the syntax looks nicer too. And so that is the the public face of Swift and the excitement over finally a more modern uh, language, both in terms of appearance and aesthetics, but also in terms of how many things do I have to be concerned with when writing a program that seemed to me to be beneath the, the concern of me as like a, a programmer of a GUI app or whatever? Yeah, and I think a lot of that is historical in terms of when languages, or C is, you know, the primary example because so much has, has, you know, if you draw the family tree of programming languages, there's an awful lot of languages that, that derive from C. And in that era, you know, I guess what late '60s or early '70s when C was invented, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I'm pretty sure the first edition of the KNR was like 1971. So late '60s, early '70s, um, the computers were so incredibly slow. I mean, just uh, just mind-bogglingly slow by our standards today. You know, it's you know like the the whole you know, that the entire Apollo mission was done with less computing power than your Apple Watch has. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And so you needed to squeeze every single cycle out of the CPU that you could. And that meant being, as a programmer, writing at this incredibly low level where you're, you know, man, you know managing all the memory by hand. Um, because if it works, then it's incredibly efficient. And then if it doesn't work, you just have to fix it. You have to fix the bugs. Um, but, like, the retain release stuff is a perfect example of that, where it's... Uh, 
you know, and I know when I first started trying to go away from it, and it was funny because it's an interesting example of Apple, you know, going down an alley and then deciding against it, which was at some point in the last decade, they introduced garbage collection to Coco. Um, pretty sure it was like in the early years of Bertrand. It was definitely after Avi Tavanian had left. Um, and I know there was a lot of reluctance from people who got it and people who didn't have, who at least didn't think they had problems dealing with the manual retain release memory management, didn't like garbage collection at all. And it turns out Apple didn't like it either. And they eventually got rid of it. You yeah. Know, all right? the, all the people who thought, Oh, I, I retain release is fine. I don't need this garbage collection. Like one of the big reasons to even consider garbage collection is just like I said, you know, Objective-C started to look old and crappy. Why do I have to worry so much about memory when programming for this platform? It makes the platform feel feel older and more primitive and less capable. I can program for Android or for Windows or for whatever, and I don't have to worry about this. And like, really, I just want to make my app, right? I want to decide, I want to write the code that's going to make my app do the things my app does. I don't care about memory. Like, can't you just take care of that for me? And so the only reason they would go down the garbage collection path is like, well, here's one way we can make people not have to worry about retain release. And it was like, well, you put in the retains and releases, but they won't do anything or whatever. And garbage collection for a variety of reasons uh, was difficult to go with Objective-C in, in particular because it is a superset of C and because it's very difficult for a garbage collector to know enough information about the C-ish parts of your program, which may be right in the Objective-C or maybe in data that's coming out of C libraries to know enough to do the right thing with that stuff and so it was kind of not uh technically infeasible but like never a completely closed solution where you could be like i feel like 100 percent of the time we will do the right thing here um and you know and and eventually like they they launched it it was out there you could use it they dog fooded it on some teams and then eventually pulled it back right and this is what i was getting at before with like things that have been true about swift in the beginning that are just now going to going to be coming into the public eye the other aspect of swift setting aside both the syntax and the modernization in terms of look at this language that does more modern things that lets the, the developers not worry about the things they're not worried about and, and express themselves in a more compact elegant form just just solving the problem they want to solve you mentioned it look more like pseudocode that's because you're not like in pseudocode you're not concerned with the little details you're just like here's the algorithm here's here are roughly the steps i don't want to be concerned about the details right it does all of that but the other thing that's big about swift and this is an interesting contrast to what you just mentioned about like c being made in the day when computers were slow um and it was it was discussed by craig as well when he's talking about the the just-in-time compilers the jit and everything um it is essentially a bet against virtual machines with uh with mm. garbage with cycle counting garbage collectors right mm. it is a bet against the things that java does and c sharp and you know android which is dalvik the virtual machine uh, or, or all the java the javascript uh, engines that run all our web browsers javascript is, is in a tough spot because it's like they're stuck finding a way to make javascript fast because it's everywhere in web browsers and no one really controls that platform and um and so that's why we've had to put all this brain power into making javascript fast but um garbage collectors was going more in that direction uh but uh as you you mentioned in the description of swift is supposed to span from like an operating system up to like a scripting system and you once you get down to low level you can't have a garbage collector doing things uh unpredictable things at unpredictable times um and even if it's predictable you can't have the garbage collector like uh, take these pauses to walk your trees of things to find out what needs to be collected even you know there's a lot of great technology in, in the java world of making garbage collectors that don't induce pauses and or are more predictable um 
but nothing is as predictable as something that is entirely deterministic, like ARC, something that is determined at compile time, where they'll put in, they essentially put in the retains and releases for you. Uh, and there's debate as to whether, you know, theoretically, can garbage collection uh, approach the reliability and performance characteristics needed for the kernel of an operating system? I think Microsoft has had various projects to try to make a sort of memory managed operating system or whatever. But Swift is a bet heavily in the other direction. And uh, this bet was made when Arc came out for Objective-C, uh, not so much with Swift, but it's, it's doubling down with Swift is that to make a language that fulfills the goal set out for Swift, we have to not have this virtual machine and garbage collection that does all the stuff. We have to we have to basically nail things down more, figure things out at compile time, make everything about it deterministic. Only then will it become possible to match both the performance and the sort of the predictability of C code so that you can write your operating system kernel, your audio subsystem, or I don't know, your real-time operating system for your car. We'll see about that. But uh but you can write that type of code without wondering when, you know, right. when the garbage collector is going to pause you for a second to walk some tree or when something's going to get collected or how much memory is going to be available at any given time based on when the collector ran, based on what code ran before you called into this code. All right. Even when you're running on a modern computer that is very fast and maybe that pause isn't even a full second, maybe it's just, you know, 200 milliseconds, but a, a fraction of a second in certain contexts that that pause is is it just kills the user experience. I mean, and that's not to badmouth Android, but it's I I mean I've heard from a lot of people that dealing with a garbage collected system is one of the reasons why Android spent years trying to get to what iOS users thought was a smooth user interface right from the get go, because the garbage collector would run while you're scrolling a list or something like that, and you'd get these little stutters or pauses, and they were fractions of a second, not like a whole second long pause, but just a little fraction of a second. Uh, and in a real-time situation, if it's some kind of camera-based thing running on a car or something like that, you really don't want to have an unpredictable even fifth of a second pause. And they have pause-free collectors, but the whole point is if you, if you give up pausing, essentially what you're either doing is having, it in the degenerate case, having something like reference counting happening in a small case, like the, the, you know generational collectors and, and the long-lived versus short-lived objects. Like you can, you can avoid pausing, but if you avoid pausing, you basically build up garbage. Uh, and it, this is also mentioned by Craig, the idea that they can run, I don't know if it's like a, a kind of an excuse of how, why they put so little RAM in their iOS devices, but that they can fit their, they can fit their stack. They can fit their operating system and their framework and their libraries in a smaller memory footprint. What did they say? Probably that, you know, uh, uh, reading from the, his thing here, like memory for, uh, with different memory for, footprints than some of our competitors who languages don't have this characteristic. Basically what he's right. saying is like Android, they have to ship more RAM in their devices because they build up too much garbage. And that's the, basically the choice you have. Either something has to decide which memory is available for, for use. You know, which, which memory are we done with and we can use again for something else or which memory is still in use. And Arc does that by, you know, and Arc, which underlies, you know, Objective-C and Swift does that by, as it runs, it says, I'm using this, now it's available. Now I'm using this, now it's available. Now I'm like in the code path along with the executing code. And garbage collection is, I just plow bravely forward and something else, the garbage collector, occasionally figures out what is available for everybody else and what isn't. And hopefully you can do that without disturbing the other guy who's plowing bravely forward. But sometimes you have to stop him from going. And if you want to have a pause-free one that, that doesn't stop the ongoing code to figure out what's available, it has to necessarily leave, be, you know, leave some stuff on the floor and say, I'm not sure if this is in use yet. I can't find out without stopping the, the, the guy that's running over there. So I'm just going to leave it off the side. And what it, what it boils down to is, you never know 
based on, you know, you've got these two things, the collector and the program. You never know at any given point. When I'm at this point in the code, how much memory is going to be uh, available in, in this process? Like, well, if the collector ran here, then maybe it'll be here. But if the collector is behind because it's running on a different core, then maybe this much will be available or whatever. And you just end up with a little bit of extra garbage and, and the overhead of the virtual machine itself and all that stuff. This is even before you get into like executing bytecode like Java does versus native and all that other stuff. Swift and Arc and Objective-C are a bet heavily against the virtual machines like Java virtual machine, the C-sharp virtual machine, and certainly anything like the JIT craziness that we've had to do for JavaScript to make that fast. Yeah, garbage collection, it, it, the analogy works, and so I can see why that stuck as the terminology. But, you know, like any any analogy, it breaks down at a certain level. And in the real world, the garbage that you keep, like let's I, like here in Philadelphia, we, we get garbage collected once a week. Um, the garbage, you know, the fact that that by Tuesday we've got six days of garbage in the house isn't a problem because we don't generate that much garbage and it just sits tied up in bags in our garage. Uh, whereas on a computing device, uncollected garbage is taking memory, and memory is a precious resource. It's almost like you're like in a studio apartment, you know, and you have uncollected garbage. Yeah, and the thing is, and again, good garbage collectors take advantage of this to try to be smart about like, what if I'm in a tight loop? And inside this loop, I do something with some amount of memory, but on the next iteration of the loop, I'm totally done with it. I don't need a new set of memory. I can just keep reusing that same region of memory over and over again in this tight loop. I don't need to allocate and get rid of it. Like, I just need to, to know, say, I'm using it. Okay, now I'm done. I'm using it. I'm done. I'm using it and I'm done. Rather, like, say you're just creating a new object in loop every time. A very naive, old-style garbage collector might be like, oh, you're making a new object. I, you need some memory for that object. Let me get the memory for that object. Okay, here you go. I gave you the memory for your object. You make it, and you go to the next iteration of the loop, and the garbage collector hasn't run yet, and it's like, oh, you're making a new object. You need some memory for that object. And a programmer manually managing memory would never, like, allocate new memory. It's like, I've got the memory from the old object. I'm done with it. I'm not using it anymore. Just take this, right? And so A good programmer might not. <laughs> I well, think we've all run into code that was written like that, though. Yeah, but this is the problem that the really primitive garbage collectors right. back in the day, and the garbage collectors became smarter. It's like, oh, well, and, uh, for a smarter garbage collector, we can divide the world up into objects that are short-lived and objects that hang around for a long time. And let's make these different pools about these short-lived objects and the ones that hang around. And let's try to, you know, what you're trying to do is get to the point where if you gave this to, uh, you know, if you gave this to an assembly language program and you showed the assembly language, they wouldn't look at it and go, this is the stupidest code I've ever seen in my life. Like, it's just incredibly wasteful of resources. Uh, you know, you want them to look at it and go, oh, oh, yeah, no, that's that's pretty much as efficiently as you could have written it. Like, I'm, you're not allocating tons of memory and then leaving it allocated and not reusing it because you don't know that uh, you can look at it and say, well, here I am. I'm looking at the assembly code. I can tell this memory is never accessed again. Why are you keeping it around? Well, the garbage collector doesn't know that yet or whatever. So. This is this is a kind of a philosophical debate. Can garbage collection ever be uh, as efficient and as predictable as manual memory management? And Arc and uh, what underlies uh, you know Swift and uh, Objective C with Arc is trying to say we're going to try to automate the part where we say retain this, do stuff with it, release it, retain this, do stuff with it, release it, so that the developer doesn't have to write it, but so that the compiler writes it. So that if we were to look at the assembly code we can see a predictable pattern because there is some overhead to doing all of those, you know, bumping up the retain counts and releasing like that's in your running code. It's the code that the garbage collector code doesn't need to do. It doesn't need to increment retain counts and decrement retain counts. It can just run because it knows the garbage collector is going to take care of that. Uh, and so the bet with Arc and Swift is 
it is more efficient and predictable to do that work in line because then we know exactly when that work will be done and we can do we can be smarter about it like we can in the in the the binary that we generate look at it and say are we being smart or are we being stupid here versus if you're running the garbage collector you're like well now there's two things in play here there's the program and then there's the garbage collector and the program looks okay in terms of what it's doing semantically but how will the garbage collector uh, interact with this how would it uh, deal with the memory and know when to make it uh, available for reuse or whatever i don't know if i'll be able to find it i did i remember reading on um what's that website quora i remember reading a quora page where somebody asked why do android devices tend to ship with so much more ram than ios devices and like the top voted answer was um I don't know who wrote it, but it was more or less, you know, that because Android is garbage collected, it's effectively Java. It's it's Java running in Google's handmade uh, ripoff <laughs> of, of Java. Um, I, I, I'm, there's no way you can convince everybody this. And, and I do think there is a factor in this where Apple just wants to use less RAM because it's cheaper and they save money. And this is one of the ways that they get to... Uh, you know, 38, 39% profit margins. But there really is a, a factor there that uh, from an effective standpoint, like an a Android device that ships with three gigs of RAM has about as much effective RAM for you as the user using device as an iOS device with one gigabyte of RAM. Yeah, and this is, like I said, this is before we even consider the idea of like bytecode, although Apple's going that direction with its bytecode thing, but not quite. But anyway, um, the idea in the Java virtual machine or any kind of virtual machine that you, that what you produce is binary code for the virtual machine. And the virtual machine is this hypothetical thing that is not your actual CPU. And then the virtual machine itself will, will execute that code natively on the cpu like so that the whole idea with java is like oh you can make this one java bytecode application and send it to an x86 device and a power pc device and an alpha device and this same quote-unquote binary because it's bytecode right. will run on all of them because they all have java virtual machines and those java vulture vulture machines will execute natively on the individual platforms but you just have one binary that was the right once run anywhere type of thing um for I, i'm not sure what the dalvik design is but i think they have i, I think they still have bytecode um but either way, like the idea of a yeah. virtual machine is you have a you don't have a real target architecture. You have a virtual machine and that's what you're you're coded to. And then you have to eventually get to native code. So it's just more stuff between you and seeing how this is going to actually execute on your actual hardware. Yeah. And I do think I think that's a keen observation that the, this whole segment of the show that that Swift is a bet that there is something better there's a better way to to better way to get all the advantages of those garbage collected virtual machines and avoid all of the overhead yeah and the, the meta the meta thing in that bet like again theoretically in computer science you can have all these debates about is it theoretically possible to have a pause-free garbage collector that has better performance because like i said there are advantages to the garbage collector because it doesn't have to have that inline code that messes with the you know memory management in in the actual execution of the program it can just go forward as fast as it can um and if the garbage collector could do its job and keep up with it and not disturb it that would be great but the other part of this is like the idea that uh, computing power, not just like CPU power, or whatever, but just if you were to graph anything having to do with computing power in terms of how fast can we get to memory? How much memory do we have? What is the single threaded integer performance of a CPU? I think I saw a chart about it, like 
single-threaded integer performance of Intel CPUs over the past 10 years or whatever. Uh, and the curve is not a hockey stick going up anymore. Like in, yeah. in, the, in our youth, in the heyday of <laughs> CPU architectures, every year there'd be a new chip and it would be like twice as fast. And, and you know, your, your code would just get magically faster. You didn't have to recompile it. You didn't have to use any new technology. Like the, the clock speed would double and the, uh, you know, the, the, the number of uh, execution units would double and just everything was, was roses every year. I, I, I remember, and this is as late as the 90s, I had an internship at a Windows software development place and uh, I was writing you know DOS and Windows code and everybody had a 486 and the Pentiums were just coming out so I don't know what year this would have been probably around 95 maybe 94 somewhere around there and the one guy got one first one of the engineers got one first and it was so ridiculously faster than everybody else and it gave us good kit I mean you know usually programmers get good good devices because they really you, you know you even if you're like a penny pinching manager, if if it takes a long time for the code to compile, getting your engineers machines that compile code faster is worth it. This guy's machine was so much faster that we would people would wait <laughs> until he was like away from his desk and then use his computer to compile stuff because it was took less time than waiting for it to compile at your own desk. Yeah, I remember just like seeing Doom running on like uh, the first time I saw Doom run on the Pentium because this is before the age of video cards. This was all in the CPU. It was just magic how much faster it was. You just and it was the same program. Like it was the same program and just for free, your everything you did got faster, yeah. right? So when we were in that part of the hockey stick curve, like the graph I saw looked like it had that part of the hockey stick curve where it's like going up, 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 and then it starts to level off and it becomes kind of like a mound. You know, we're going the slope is decreasing over time. Uh, and if we were still on that hockey stick, I think it's inevitable that VMs and any sort of higher abstraction thing would have won because it's like yeah, it's a little bit slower, and yeah, you can get behind, and we may be using more memory than they're supposed to, but just everything is on this big hockey stick, and it doesn't matter. Your concerns are pointless. They will be dwarfed by by the uh, inexorability of progress, and progress has slowed for two reasons. One, uh, the the move to mobile has pushed everybody back down uh, that, that chart a little bit, and then we, we kind of think we're back in the hockey stick era where it's like, oh, Apple's like doubling their CPU speeds every year, but all they did was they just got shoved back down, down the hockey stick because we're, <laughs> these things are these tiny little CPUs with small batteries and thermal envelopes that don't allow for, you know, fans or anything like that. So we're kind of back in, in the, the, you know, the olden days, but that means we're also back in performance. So we like on, on the iPhone CPUs, they used to be like dishwasher operating uh, dish, dishwasher CPUs. Like they were terrible <laughs> and they've been slowly catching up to now, like with the iPad pro, it's like, this is a modern MacBook CPU, but not surpassing the, the desktop. No, lines, right. No. So uh, they're, they're still there. We're still, everything is slower. And that's been a huge advantage for Apple having a native platform, like back in the day where everything was objective C, which is a C based language to be able to, to just get the iPhone one out the door and, uh, and working. Like that's why the Blackberry people thought it was a fake demo because it seemed impossible. Yeah. Yeah. And then we see things like the watch where we're pushed back to, wow, this is really slow again. Yeah. And then the other aspect of this is Moore's law, Moore's law, uh, can't continue forever the there was like a the density of transistors on, on a, a cpu doubling every 18 months well eventually you get down to like quarks and gluons like you can't you know right. uh, having the size of things the math starts to get really funky really fast and as far as we are aware you can't keep subdividing matter forever eventually you get down to fundamental particles and way before you get down to fundamental particles everything becomes screwy in terms of the laws of physics and quantum mechanics and it's so 
uh, lithography sizes, like we continue to march forward, but there there is an end in sight where you're going to have to come up with a new technology, like quantum computing or, uh, you know, like just... It's not as if this the hockey stick can't go on forever. And so the bet with Swift is the era of time that we're in now where progress on computing power and performance has for, for bo both like practical reasons, you know, in terms of how, how much harder is it for Intel to make their top end CPUs faster every year and how long does it take to get to the next process node for making, you know, feature sizes smaller in CPUs and because of the move to mobile and wearable and who knows what else, that this is a good time to say, I don't think uh, the hardware is going to make it uh, so that those virtual machines are a better suited to Apple's needs than the solution that represented by Swift and Arc with Objective-C. And so let's say, you know, Swift is a language for the next 20 years. In the next 20 years, we feel like this is the best technical solution until quantum computers or whatever. This is what we're going with. And Apple is essentially begging the company on that. Uh, and it's been a good bet so far because, like I said, I think it gave them a huge advantage during the, uh, the 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 iPhone era, essentially the iOS device era, where it was very difficult for the competitors to catch up with them until the CPUs did start climbing up that hockey stick and said, "Now, now we can support a Java virtual machine and have a responsive GUI." Right. Uh, you know, just put a little more RAM in there. Uh, it, it occurs to me, and I'm, I don't want to spend a lot of time speculating about a car on this episode at least. But one of the things that makes me laugh about the car idea is that it's like the one team at Apple that's writing software that the, the computing part of the device doesn't have to really worry about battery life. I mean, the car itself obviously is going to have to worry about battery life tremendously, but the amount of the battery that goes <laughs> towards propelling a you know multi-ton device is, you know, everything and the little computer that lights up the dashboard and maybe you know does whatever else with the sensors and stuff is kind of insignificant but it's really the exception to where things are going the watch to me is the better uh, uh, you know example of where things are going where the computing device is getting smaller and smaller i mean and you know i don't know what the idea would be but surely they're going to be making devices that make the watch look big you know in the years to come and so they're never going to get out of the need, I don't think, in the foreseeable future to to have a really efficient code that runs on really what everybody would consider to be a painfully slow processor because we keep the, the desire to keep making things smaller and smaller and have little fingernail-sized things that, that do clever stuff is inevitable. Yeah, and, and really, you have to view it kind of as like as epochs in history. Like there was there was the part where we were growing up, which was awesome, where computers would get faster and more powerful, just like everything about them would get better just year after year. And it was amazing. Right. And if you get starry eyed and extrapolate from that, you'd be like, by the time we're adults, computers will be infinitely <laughs> fast and have more memory the size of a planet. Right. Uh, but no, that's not how it works. We start reaching the limits of, you know, uh, silicon wafer lithography and all the other and instruction level parallelism and all the other sort of very difficult problems that make it harder to make you know or even just like heat dissipation with the the megahertz wars like uh you know what are we using now three four gigahertz cpus they had three four six gigahertz cpus a long time ago too why are we not using 700 gigahertz cpus like we're running into the limits of, of the current way we do computation uh and so we're kind of in it's not a dead period like we're making progress and we're doing interesting things and we're go, we're going the other direction saying well we're not making a lot of progress on the top end but we can shrink these suckers down really small now isn't that pretty awesome you can have a smartphone or a smart watch 
But there will inevitably come a time where we come out of this slower period and go up into another hockey stick. And again, whether it's quantum computing or whatever, whether we're all dead or not, like there will be further progress. It's not the end of progress. But if you're Apple and you're trying to figure out how to make the development platform for right now and for the next 20 years, you have to sort of bet like what is the best fit for this? And it's, you know, Apple have the benefit of everyone else going first and going with virtual machines, whether it be Java or C-sharp or the uh, common language runtime at Microsoft and seeing how JavaScript has worked out in the browser. And they've essentially said, because of both mobile and the slowdown in the top end performance increase, we believe this is the best bet for the next 20 years or so because they saw everyone else go before them. Um, and so that that's where we are with this. I don't think, you know, Swift is not, if Swift is a language for the next 100 years, it could be. Um, but again, the beauty of these details not being in Swift itself is there's nothing in the language itself that dictates that it couldn't be run on top of a virtual machine. It's just that's not the correct solution for Apple right now, and that's not what they're doing. Yeah. All right, let me tell you about uh, our next friend of the show, and it's our good friends at Wealthfront. These guys have been sponsoring the show the last few episodes. They are, here's what they give you, a low-cost automated investment service. It makes it super easy to invest your money the right way. Uh, you just put money into Wealthfront account, and then they manage the portfolio. You you ask they ask you a couple questions about like how uh, risk averse you are, how aggressive you want to be, because um, you can obviously investing money you know that goes into the stock market it could go down. It's not you know it's not a bank account. Um, so they ask you a couple questions to see how comfortable you are with risk, and then they just take it from there, and that's it. Uh, they literally say whether you're just starting out, you can. I think you can open an account with just five hundred bucks. Um, if you want to put millions of dollars in there, you can do it too. That seems crazy to me, but uh, you know, really, it scales all the way from you know you being five hundred dollars put it in a market to millions of dollars. You can do it. Why would you use them instead of a traditional money manager? Basically, what Wealthfront is is an automated service that replaces a human money manager. Uh, the big reason to do it is that. Number one, they're just putting money into index funds anyway, which is really a, a smart long-term strategy. If you read anything about the ways that people can actually, um, you know, invest for success in the long term, putting your money into index funds is the way to go. That's pretty much what Wealthfront does, but they balance it between different index funds based on you know monitoring systems all the time, you know, monitoring the market all the time, and moving money around between different index funds to to keep your risk at the right level. Um, and the big thing is is that Wealthfront charges way lower fees than traditional money managers. Uh 1.01% is about the average, but some of the some of the money managers out there charge up to 3% and that's of what you have under management. So if you have, you know, $10,000 under management, they they take a fee of 3% of your money, not like your profits, but your money that's in there. Uh Wealthfront uh fee is just 0.25% and they only start charging that uh, above $10,000. So if you only, you know, once you get $10,000 in your account, that's when they start charging their 0 0.25 uh, fee. And if you use the code that I have here for you, they actually bump that up to 15,000. And so if you have 15,000 and then one, I put one more dollar in there, they charge the fee on that $1 that's over 15,000. Keep going from there. Um, Go to, here's where you go to find out more, wealthfront.com slash the talk show. And again, uh, you can start with just 500 bucks. And they even say right here that that's really how most of the people who sign up for Wealthfront do it. Put a little money in there, see how it works. And then when you see how it works and you like the results, that's when you put your quote unquote real money in. Um, 
So go to wealthfront.com slash the talk show. You'll actually save money because uh, you get that you get bumped up to fifteen thousand dollars before they even start charging you a nickel. Uh, so go check them out. And here's the part where I have to try to stay out of prison. For compliance purposes, I have to tell you that Wealthfront Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is the possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. So far, so good. Nobody from the SEC has gotten on me about this. It's only a matter of time till they find you. <laughs> uh, anything else on Swift and and the Federighi interview? I hope they do more of those things. Um, and I, I think we're are we working our way down the ladder? I guess we kind of are. Like Schiller uh, coming to the talk show, and now uh, Federighi, and like we could keep going down to like. Clist- Chris Latner is on like open source uh, podcast talking about programming languages with nerds. Then eventually you get like individual developers on like the UI kit team uh, doing interviews. Well, maybe they won't go that far, but I don't know. I like the idea uh, because as you go down the chain, people you would think would be both in the position and enthusiastic about talking about more small technical details, right? The, the old Apple, the idea was there's only, we speak with one voice from the top uh, and, and, and that one voice doesn't say too much. And now, <laughs> now we're kind of moving down the ladder. Well, we speak with multiple voices from the top tiers. And so they can talk about a little bit of different things. Like, you know, Phil Schiller is not going to talk to you about, uh, you know, uh, runtime casting things into protocols. Right. But right. Craig Federighi will. And so as you keep going down, I think the, the, the conversations get more interesting to narrower audiences as opposed to always just being like the big picture of what is Apple doing type of stuff. So I enjoy that. The thing I've detected, what I would define the new Apple, the difference between old Apple and new Apple, is that they remain committed to secrecy on future products for the exact same reasons they always have been, that they don't want competitors to know and that from a marketing perspective, they feel that being able to unveil these things is a surprise is an advantage and that it gets them a lot of publicity around their events and announcements that they wouldn't have if they were blabbing about everything in advance. And I think also just the good old fashioned uh, under promise over, over deliver that if you keep talking about stuff in the future all the time, inevitably some of these things are going to ship late and then you've disappointed people in terms and, you know, but for stuff that's already shipped and talking about decisions they've already made and the stuff that's out there, I think that's where the difference is. And I feel like old Apple was, if we're misunderstood, screw them. I don't, we don't care. You know, you either get it or you don't. And I feel like new Apple at an executive level really is, it's, it's the openness is coming from the frustration, I think, of being misunderstood and feeling like if we could just explain ourselves, we'd be less misunderstood. And I wish that we could do that. If only like we, all of our commentary on our blogs and podcasts and everything only had a username, but they had no way to contact us like the App Store. <laughs> Would that be frustrating, Apple? Like if, if people were misunderstanding you, but there was just no way you could find who this John Gruber guy was to, to talk to him about it. I mean, that this that's a good contrast in terms of the organizations. Like uh, they'll talk a lot about the roadmap for Swift and Swift 3 and engage with the community about what would be best about this programming language that now is going to be much bigger than Apple itself and as a community project. But no one will talk to you about the App Store, even if you have an app. You know, it's just such a such a contrast in terms of 
if I could just talk to a person who would be reasonable with me, like surely we could work this out. You hear all the, the, the crazy stories about like an app that's in review forever, or they think you're violating someone's copyright when it's like, no, you don't understand. It's the, it's the opposite. They're violating mine and just things that you feel like could be worked out between two reasonable people who just talk to each other on the phone that nevertheless take months to I come saw, to an unsatisfying conclusion. That what was, there was a, an app. Oh, I know it was when, uh, what was the app that, that quit the app store? Uh, which one sketch well no the one that was recent so sketch uh announced that they were leaving the app store and again i don't know i don't want to call it the straw that broke the camel's back i don't know that it's going to mean that anything is going to happen but to me it was just emblematic of the problems and especially in the mac app store um because sketch was to my mind the prototypical modern mac productivity app it's it's beloved it, it's so popular. I mean, and Apple obviously knows it's popular. They ship with like the the Watch OS uh, SDKs. They ship uh, Photoshop templates for Watch UI design and Sketch templates for Watch UI design. So, and I think those are the only two. You know, obviously anybody who uses a different graphics program could open up the PSDs and convert them or something like that. But the two that Apple ships, you know, that you can just download from Apple.com are for Sketch and Photoshop. So to to put it on the same pedestal as Photoshop is, you know. It's pretty good. Um, and they've won Apple Design Awards, and they've been heavily promoted in the App Store. And for them to leave the App Store, to me, is just, wow. If, they, if they're if they not happy in the App Store, who is? This that's, is a- when, that's when Apple's narrative doesn't fit anymore. Because if you're an Apple and you want to have a narrative to make yourself feel better about App Store complaints, you'd be like, well... These are just kind of like the same way you talk about the complaints about, you know, I don't need ARC. Retain release is fine. You're like, well, these are just the old people. Like, we love them. They're loyal to our platform. They've been there a long time. Your Adobe's, your Microsoft's, your whatever. But really, the future of the platform is about new blood. It's about new developers, developers we haven't heard of. Like, say someone makes a new graphics application that's not Adobe, uh, that's from a smaller team, that, that grows up on our platform, that we were the first and only platform that they targeted, that, that it is native to us, that, you know... Like, that's what Apple wants. Like, oh, these, this fr- fresh young faces, like new talent, essentially. That, that, because that's the future of the platform. The future of the platform is not old, crusty people who have been shipping on the Apple platforms for 30 years, right? It's new people. And so if a new company that you've never heard of comes along and makes this great graphics application that uh, is, you know, taking the world by storm and Apple's saying, putting them up alongside Photoshop, and they say... Uh, yeah, you know, we're out. We can't take this App Store stuff anymore. Then you can't just say, well, really, the App Store is great for everybody. It's just you old crusty people who are used to the old ways. Yeah. You know, it breaks the narrative. Yeah, one of the ways that Sketch, again, is like, to me, a poster child of, of what Apple wants third-party apps to be is like exactly what you said. It's Mac only, and it's not Mac only because they, you know, it's because they've, how does a small team build an app that in some ways can compete toe-to-toe with Photoshop? It's because they're leveraging all of this great graphics stuff built into mac os 10 um same thing with pixelmator same thing with acorn uh from our pal gus you know that these apps written these graphics apps written by really small teams i mean gus is the only developer at flying meat i mean it's a one-person team there he he can make an app that that credibly stands as a professional image editor because he's leveraging it wouldn't even make any sense to go cross-platform because it's it's all built on this system stuff and that's what apple wants for multiple reasons one that's why they give you these apis and they are happy to see them used and then they know that when they add new features to the operating system like um uh 
what's the thing on the new Retina 5K Max where there's more colors on the monitor? The D- a P- P3 color, uh, color gamut or whatever it's called. Right. So then these apps, and I think Sketch, one of these apps, I know I just saw in the release notes on the App Store, one of them just released an update that has support for it already. Whereas in the old days, when you're, you know, like, and not to badmouth Adobe, but when, like with Adobe stuff where they're cross-platform, they couldn't adopt like a new, great new Mac technology like this deep color on the 5K iMac because they have this graphics engine that is a level of abstraction and it's based on what's available on Mac and Windows. And if Windows doesn't have it, maybe there's, you know, it's going to take them longer to be able to adopt it because then you've got these files that have, you know, deep color that don't show up on Windows or something like that. Um, It's just a perfect example of doing it the right way. And then here they are getting out. Anyway, the one thing that stuck out to me on this and you like your example of wouldn't it be great if you could just talk to somebody and work this out was in the hubbub over Sketch leaving the App Store. I was reading Michael Tsai. had a great blog post with like a roundup blog post with like, you know, eight, nine, 10 different reactions from around the web. And he just noted at the end of the noted without any further comment that he has an update to a Mac app that's been pending review. It's just a bug fix update to one of his apps that was pending review for 59 days. <laughs> I mean, what, what does that, what kind of sense does that make? Here's a bug fix for my users. And 59 days later, it's still waiting to go into review. Yeah, and even that you could just say is like prioritization or whatever, and you might feel bad about it. But the ones that just really drive me nuts is where like it's a misunderstanding, like it's a romantic comedy level misunderstanding, and <laughs> and, and it's just like, listen to me, you know, like if like in, in romantic comedies, you're always about like if they could just if these two people just got together and explained this one thing, like the whole rest of the movie would be pointless, right? And this is like this in the app store, but there's no one for you to talk to. Like you you send your little message in a bottle. And then you wait, and then you wait, and then you wait, and this inscrutable reply comes back. It's like, no, you didn't understand me. Are, are you, did you even read what I wrote? Like, it's is this an automated system? Is there a human there? Can I talk to somebody? Somebody who is both empowered and able to understand. Like, there's like there's a language barrier. Like, they don't, you know. I I think the one about copyright was that like where some a bunch of scammers were putting up applications that appeared to come from a different developer, and then Apple would flag the legitimate developer to say they were violating the copyright. It was like, what whatever it was that. Stuff like that is very frustrating. Like, and th- and that essentially what that comes down to is like, like in a romantic comedy, just merely a lack of communication. And how can Apple be doing so well and improving so much in its communication? Like, keeping the advantages, like you said, of like keeping your product secret and not and not showing everything you're even thinking of making because then people are disappointed. But also. Uh, being open to feedback and having a community where human beings talk to other human beings. It doesn't mean they're always going to agree. and doesn't mean that people outside Apple are telling Apple what to do, but just to make sure everyone's all on the same page. And obviously it's much more advantageous for a programming language, which is less of a competitive advantage for Apple than like its individual features or whatever. But the App Store, like it's just, it's, it's so clearly a different philosophy dictating the the public face of that part of the organization than the other and i know it's all one big place and they try, apple tries to speak with one voice but uh, you know it just it's becoming uh increasingly clear where the lines are uh, in terms of like the new apple that you were describing and the old apple it's it's still inside there and 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 you know who knows like who's to say that that is or isn't appropriate for the individual things it's just a difference in like what department am I talking to? What is the subject that that we're that we're even talking about? Um, and how then does Apple talk about it? Hmm. <laughs> Fifty nine days in review. What the hell? <laughs>
Um, <laughs> uh, I guess I could take another break here. And do you want to talk anything else about Swift? I guess the other thing I, I one other thing I thought about was Swift. I know Apple's they've said this for a while, but you know Federighi's had this in his talking points all week long, which is that they really, really think that Swift could be the like the default go to programming language, not just for their platforms and writing apps for their platforms, but just like you know high school kids who are learning to program, middle school kids. I mean, I don't even know why I wait till high school, but kids learning to program, computer science courses in college, you know. Why not, you know, that they see Swift as the language that could take that role, which to me is it, I, I believe it. I really think that they, they, they mean it, but that's an, such an incredibly uh, ambitious goal for a programming language. Yeah, I think it sounds more reasonable when you think about, well, what are those people learning with now? Because I can tell you it's not C. Like, I think most of the time it's Java or JavaScript, which... I guess this JavaScript probably isn't terrible because it's a pretty simple language. Really? But you, do you think CompSci is with JavaScript? Or do you think... Uh, I think Java. Like Java, Java, I think, is the most common teaching language at this point. Um, some schools like, you know, I, I think MIT still is something with Scheme and Lisp and all that business. Uh, but the days of them teaching C as your first programming language, I think, are long gone. And C++, same type. Like, what is a better teaching language? What it gets to. Like, right. if not Swift, then what? And if Java is the answer... I think Swift has fewer, well, it's difficulty. When they say that, like, Swift is going to be the language then, which Swift do you want them to teach? Do they want us to teach Swift 1? Oh, no, no, Swift 2? Oh, no, like, I, again, it's barely sitting up at this point. So this is obviously a long-term plan. But once Swift settles down, being a more modern language, um, it's either going to be Swift or something like Python or JavaScript that's an even higher level language. Because learning languages don't need to care about performance and stuff like that. So you can get away with using not I'm going to say a toy language, but a much, much higher level language that you just want them to deal with the concepts. And I think the only thing that will hold Swift back is Swift is a, a complicated language. Swift has a lot of features, right? And a lot of the features in Swift, I think, make more sense in the context of understanding simpler languages first. Swift is not a simple language. There is a, there is a lot to it. It's very powerful. There's a lot of concepts and things in there not details that you don't care about like memory management and crap well there's a little tiny bit of that if you really want to get into it but right, what do they have like an unsafe pointer type <laughs> yeah like they've got the go ahead screw yourself abilities in there but that's but you wouldn't teach that but even just the concepts of the way it handles uh, you know all, all the different prototypes and class extensions and inheritance and when do i use a class and when do i use a struct and value types versus reference types and there's there's a lot of things in there that aren't in much simpler languages like back in the old days uh, tickle tcl right. um you know or like logo with a little turtle turtle or even something like python i mean i guess i guess every language has its grotty corners but swift is a already a pretty full featured language and it's going to get even fuller featured with time so that may hold it back from being a teaching language because in some respects, a teaching language, you don't even need it to be a real language. I mean, I guess you need it to execute for your exercises and stuff, but you're not teaching them, here's the programming language you're going to use when you enter the industry. Like, it's not a vocational school. You're right. teaching them concepts, which is why MIT can teach Lisp and Scheme and everything and ML or whatever. And it's like, I don't care if you can use this. We're just trying to teach you conceptually how this works and why Python. Again, Python, another language that many people have said looks like pseudocode, especially since there's no curly braces and the indentation is mandatory. You can go to your algorithms book and see the algorithms for red black trees and you can write it in Python and it looks a lot like it did in your algorithms book that didn't have, you know, the algorithms book just has English words. It doesn't It's not a programming book at all. Right. Um, so I think the road to Swift being a teaching language 
may be difficult, but if I had to pick, uh, do you want to teach this course in Java or in Swift? I think Swift would be better, if only because Java's got even more weirdness in terms of like primitives versus, you know, auto boxing and, and object types and all sorts of weird crap like that. So I've never written Java, so I'm speaking from a position of <laughs> admitted some level of ignorance, but I've, you know, everything I've ever seen of Java is, it's just, it's so verbose. Uh, it, it really, I, I find it very off-putting. Yeah. And there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of weirdness in Java that has to do with, like, I think it was, it was a funny part of, speaking of things that would fear, sound weird in the future, a funny part of Craig Fittery's interview when you were saying, um, or, or server-side languages like Java. Java was not made as a server side. Java was right. a language for set top boxes. Right. And well, right. and in fact it's what everybody programs on to write Android apps. Right. Or, right. you know, well, it's well, that's yeah. But like its its origins were right. for set top boxes and then eventually its its second life was, oh, these are going to be applets they're going to run in your browser. Like it was the opposite of server side. It was going to be code that we send from a server to your client and runs in people's web browsers and then it had its third life as you know what, we're just going to have this as a memory managed language on the server because it's faster than all those scripting languages, and it doesn't require manual memory management like C++. It, uh, it always struck me, and I know that it came from Sun, and that Sun was a you know a typical laid back uh, Valley you know corporation. God, isn't it funny that you have to talk about Sun in the past tense, and it even feels like the past tense now. Kids don't even know what Sun is. Um, you know, I know that's where it started, but the syntax of it looked so corporate to me. It looked like the type of programming language that was written by like IBM programmers who still wore like a shirt and tie to work, and and like the type of people who like they your email is configured and you can't even change it so that you have like a twelve line legal disclaimer in your signature. You know, that, you know, if you've gotten this email by mistake, you're legally obligated to delete it and notify us immediately. You know, it just looks like that type of programming language where just to have a simple class, you've got like 12 lines of bullshit boilerplate for everything. Yeah, I never like trying to do hello world and having to make like a class that I mean, like, there, there's, <laughs> exactly. there's a certain symmetry to it. Like that it, it is kind of a, like if you compare it to C++ or something like that, it, it it was trying to make a more rationalized world. And it, I think as one of the first languages to really break out and be successful in doing that, I, I definitely feel like it has a, I have respect for it as making a substantial leap over what came before it. But I have respect for it, but it's, I didn't like it. I, I when I went to Drexel in the nineties and majored in computer science, we learned Pascal at first, like the, the first year courses were Pascal. Um, and people used to complain some people, not largely, but people, there were complaints like on the mailing list, like students complaining to the faculty that, you know, why are we learning Pascal? No, there are no jobs in Pascal. Everybody wants C programmers. And, you know, and the professors, you know, if they would re respond, or I guess it wasn't mailing lists, it was, new, you know, the news groups we had for the computer science department. And they would just be like, we're not running a vocational school here. If you learn how to program, you'll be able to program in any language, which is true. I mean, it's, you know, it's not like, you know, you learn how to program in C and then you don't know how to program another line. You just have to learn the syntax. Um, but like when I took object-oriented programming, it was C++. And I thought, wow, object-oriented programming sucks. <laughs> That's what I took away from object-oriented programming in college. I was like, wow, this is, this is bullshit. Yeah, I mean, and it's like, that's the thing about teaching languages is you're trying to teach concepts. Uh, and they may be concepts that are pretty new, uh, but you have to have an embodiment of those concepts to teach them because you do want people to write code that executes. And every embodiment comes with its own BS. 
like whatever that BS may be, whether it be, whether it may be, oh, it started out as a series of macros on top of C. And so it's got some, you know, C grottiness in there, or this language is obsessed with performance. So there's a lot of crap that you don't quite understand that complicates things, but it's needed for performance. Um, or Java, like this is the, this was originally made for set thought boxes and later was used for web applets. And there's this whole bytecode thing that's going on. And they tried to make a new portable framework that works everywhere. So you, why the hell does file I look all crazy? Well, it has to work everywhere and can't rely on any, you know, it's like there's a virtual machine and it's not using the native libraries in the platform and everything is all verbose and, you know, and that, that baggage is not part of what they're trying to teach you. But you have to end up learning it as part of the course. And if things go awry, the course can end up being being more about that baggage or get distracted and think that baggage is part of the essential concept. Like you said, thinking that C++ is object-oriented programming. Two very separate, different things. And if that's it, and it was mine too. It was the first object-oriented language I learned was C++. Um, it really warps your worldview. And you can't help if you're teaching that course to be influenced by the language you're choosing. So I'm glad that that people upgraded from C and C++ to Java because it was a significant step up in terms of the BS that you have to learn and deal with. But Java has its own BS and Swift has its own BS too, especially now that it's changing every year. Right. That if you teach the course one year, your your previous assignments won't even compile the next year. Like maybe it's not time to uh, jump on the Swift bandwagon yet. But um, but over time, yeah, you need you need to upgrade the, the language you're using to teach. And hopefully they get better over time and have less BS. Here's the thing. I, I guess I, I I think I had it in my notes for the, the interview with Craig Federighi, and I, I don't think I got to it. And I think it was because it was it just seemed like a dead end to try to get it out of him. But that, um, I, I don't know how I would have asked it. But the basic idea being that a lot of times a programming language is it starts at, to fuel the creator of the language's personal itch. Perl is a perfect example of that. Say what you want about Perl. Me and you, you know, I know you still write Perl as your job, right? Still do. Um, and, you know, everything I've ever done of any consequence programming-wise is written in Perl. Uh, the My reference markdown uh, implementation is Perl. Uh, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I still, I like it. And I think for me, for me personally, because I, most of what I want to do is string manipulation. That's why Perl is great. And, but the, the fact that it's so great at string manipulation was the fact that Larry Wall was, wanted to do things like that. And if you read back to when he created it, it was, you know, he was writing these little glue scripts for, what was it? Like the NSA or something like that? It was some kind of government. Not the NSA. I think it was NASA. NASA. I think you're off by one letter on that acronym. <laughs> uh, but he was like, FT, you know, had these automated things that need to run and FTP the results up to a certain server and that it was automating them with scripts. And he was like, wow, this is terrible. It was to be a lot easier if I just made my own little scripting language that made this easier to do. And then it grew from there. And all, all sorts of other languages have origins like that. And I just wonder whether... Is it a problem that Swift is being steered by someone who's a systems designer who writes, you know, the LLVM and CLang and writes these compilers? Is is it is there a problem having a language written by the compiler guy because you're making things you're trying to make things easier for the compiler and optimize things from the compiler as opposed to making a language that makes it more possible to be expressive as a GUI app d designer? Well, that foundational bet on, uh, you know, Arc essentially versus a virtual machine is at the core, I feel like, of the design of Swift because it's baked in entirely. And that is definitely from a compiler writer's perspective. And I, Craig touched on this as well. If you are writing a compiler, dealing with a language that makes it so you can't 
add certain obvious optimizations because according to the semantics of the language, you can't be sure that this thing, you know, I, I can't be sure what method is going to get called here. I'm not, I'm not going to know until runtime. At compile time, I have no idea. So uh, like Craig said, the compiler has hands tied behind its back, both hands sometimes. And it's just like, well, nothing I can do about it. I just got to put in this code to execute this at runtime. I'll look up the method and we'll execute it. And you can try to do some optimizations. And the whole fact that there's a runtime that all your code gets turned into calls to the C library for Objective-C message send. And we can optimize the hell out of that with assembly code or whatever. But the bottom line is we can't, we can't inline it because we don't even know what the hell method is going to be like. There's that there's dynamism in the language that the compiler can handle. Like, so if you're a compiler guy, you're like, boy, this is really frustrating. Like, I know I can make this go faster. I know I can make this safer. I know I can make it so I can I can guarantee that hey, this is always going to be initialized. There's nothing a programmer can do to end up with this half initialized object that's going to cause a seg fault because they didn't realize through this chain of code that they're halfway through the initializers and they call a method and it tries to read some object attribute that has garbage data in it because it wasn't initialized. I can fix that in the language. And I can say, this language guarantees that by the time this object is constructed, all this stuff has been initialized. Uh, it's guaranteed by the language. It's guaranteed by the compiler. That bug is gone from everybody's code. Or calling a method on a thing that doesn't exist, that bug is gone from I can guarantee that, right? And so it's not just that he's like, a, I just want to make it good for the compiler. The compiler guy also sees all the places where, uh, you know, where bugs happen, where programs yeah. fall down. And he can solve that. And I think what you're getting at is like, okay, but if you mostly write compilers and you don't write GUI apps, maybe you're making a language that makes it more difficult to write UI kit or app kit or some like one of these great GUI libraries that helps application developers make the applications that they make for the Mac and for iOS. Um, and I think, I mean, there's, there's two things giving people that impression. One is there is a match between the language and the libraries in terms of, again, culturally as well as technically. Uh, and early in Swift's life, one of the main requirements of Swift is you have to be able to call into Objective-C and all that Objective-C. You have to be able to interact. You have to be able to write an application partially in Swift and partially Objective-C. It's a non-starter. And it can't, can't, it, it can't be, it may not be optimal, but it can't be terrible to drop into an object, you know, to call into an Objective-C library. And like Craig said, you can't wait around to be like, well, we've got a new language and then a whole new set of libraries and a whole new set. Like, you can't just start from scratch. There's too much value and investment in what in, in all the existing frameworks and libraries. And then you'd still be in a case where you have dual libraries, like a whole separate stack for Swift. And, you know, it's not so you have to do have to have that interaction with it. And that interaction is going to be a little bit weird, like all the crazy annotations they have in Objective-C libraries to get better interfaces with Swift. And you have to think really hard about like carbon and I, cocoa. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they eventually settled that. Right. right. But, but, you know, during the transition, you, know, you got to do what you got to do in the transition. Right. I think that transition makes Swift look bad because if it was a top to bottom Swift stack, it would be clear. Hey, how do I use Swift to make a GUI app right now? It's hey, how do I use Swift to use Objective-C libraries to make a GUI app? And there's this drive by people writing code, like, oh, I just want to be pure Swift. But you can't really be pure Swift at this point. Like, they feel like it's a defeat to say, yeah. well, I'm using Swift, but I'm basing everything on NS object because I just want those type of semantics. Like, it feels it feels dirty. It doesn't feel pure Swift. And it's not going to be pure Swift top to bottom for a long time just because of the reality of the situation they're in. And the second thing I think that is helping that, that you have to take into mind is that, yes, yeah, Swift is a language written by a compiler guy that does a lot of things that make uh, make it easier to write a compiler and then make it uh, easier to make code that's guaranteed to be safe. But that guy had to pitch his language to an organization filled with people who make GUI applications. He had to convince like Ali Ozer that, you know, this new language that they came up to it with in my basement or whatever 
I think should be the language for the next 20 years of Apple. And it's an awesome way to write iOS and Mac apps. He had to make that case. It's not like he he's not right. the dictator of Apple, right? He didn't say, I came up with Swift and we're going to use it. And I feel like the people he had to make that case to know what the heck they're doing. And it had to have been a good case. So and I have don't... no, yeah, have no problem standing up for their, you know, for their own thoughts and, 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 he, yeah, and he's not their boss. Right. So I, I, I've, you know, I, it's, it's very uncomfortable in the, in the phase we are now where it's so clear that there are barriers to making this work and Swift isn't done yet and all these other things that are true, but I'm not really ready to bang the gavel on anything having to do with like, well, Swift is not as well suited for making GUI apps as Objective-C was. Yeah. You could say that the current version of Swift is not as well suited as Objective-C for using Objective-C libraries to write GUI apps. But I feel like uh, as the culture and capabilities and actual code, as in Swift top to bottom, like so let's start with Foundation and all the other libraries, uh, start getting built up. I feel like those same teams that made like, you know, when they made UIKit, they kind of like repented for the sins of AppKit and yeah. did it better. There's one more chance to do that right now. All those same, the, the great minds behind UIKit and AppKit, some of those same minds are going to be the great minds behind the Swift native frameworks for writing GUI applications in the future. And I'm, I think that'll be a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, um, and I think that the other thing too about being the compiler guy is that it it put Latner and his team and the people he works with in a position where they're really intimately familiar with the 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 things that cause problems in shipping applications. And maybe some of those problems are things that a true expert in Objective-C would never do. And therefore they feel a little frustrated like that the language, not that it's being catered to dummies, but that by by making certain things that were possible no longer possible, you prevent a whole class of possible bugs, but at the same time you also prevent certain clever but dangerous techniques that people had taken advantage of significantly. And that Apple is making a decision that that trade-off is worth it because they, they, they're in a position where they literally know from like crash reports and and the code that's actually been shipping that being able to not do this anymore is actually going to cut off, you know, this sort of problem won't even be possible anymore. Or just making it harder. Like, I mean, the, the idea of a half initialized object, like, you know, making that impossible in the language, you can do that fine. The idea of calling a method that doesn't exist on an object, like at runtime, you thought you had an object of this type, but really you casted it to the wrong thing. Like in Swift, you can forcibly cast things to the wrong thing and try to send them, the, the, you know, the, the wrong method call, but like the whole idea of like looking up a cl uh, class name by a string, like all these capabilities, this dynamism that Craig talked about that they're adding. Um, they're adding it so it will be possible to do these things, but it's not like the right or preferred way to do things. And it certainly isn't the default. And if you do it, it's going to stand out in your code because you're going to have to make it like, it doesn't stand out in Objective-C code when you're iterating over this heterogeneous collection and just sending every object a message blindly, right? And if they're nil, like it'll just be a no-op. And if they're the wrong class, it'll blow up at runtime because it'll be like object blah doesn't respond to the message blah. You'll find that out at runtime, right? But if you look at the loop, it's like, oh, this is just looping over the contents of an NSRA and sending a message to every single item. Looks good to me, right? <laughs> if you try to do something that potentially dangerous and swift, I think it would look scary. Or I think it would look like, I am going to now call a method that the compiler cannot absolutely 100% guarantee is going to work. Um, and because that's not the default and because it will require more code and look scarier, 
it is sort of culturally saying that in the Swift world, we don't we do not do stuff like that. We don't be like, oh, the programmer will take care of it. I'm sure every object in this collection will respond to this message. I'm sure it will be fine. Or they'll just do response to selector and then they'll call it or whatever. Um, in Swift, the default wants to be, if you just see straightforward Swift code, it's going to work and not fall victim to this whole whole classes of errors that, that could potentially happen in, in Objective-C because too much was determined at runtime. Hmm. Um, let me take a moment here and thank our next sponsor. It's our good friends, longtime friends of the show, Squarespace. You guys know Squarespace. It's a build it, your all-in-one, build-your-own web site platform. Uh, what type of websites can you make with Squarespace? Well, the better question would be what types can't you? You just go there, you just go there and sign up and immediately you can just get right started and say what what they'll say, what are you trying to what are you trying to build? You want to build a store? And you go to store and then they'll show you a bunch of templates for example stores that you start with. And then you say, Yes, this is exactly the sort of template. This this is what the type of store I want to make. Then you open that up and you just start editing what you see that replace the images with your image, replace the text with your text. Um, you want to build a blog though, if, if that's what you're looking to build or host a podcast, uh, you just write down when you sign up, it's just like, I want to create a blog. I want to host a podcast. Here's some templates. I like this template. Use this one, but I want to change this to this and this to this. And you start changing things right there in the browser. Total WYSIWYG. Um, uh, really could not be more obvious. It's so visual. Um, they have all sorts of hooks there. If you want to insert your own code, you want to get in there at the code level and change it at that level, you can do that too. Um, but fundamentally, it is, it's a GUI. It's a graphical user interface way to design websites. And they have templates for so many different types of sites. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, it doesn't just spit at the end. It doesn't just spit out a bunch of HTML files that you then put in a folder and upload to a web host or whatever. They're, they're the hosting platform too. It's all in one. You you build it, you make it. Um, you can even get your own domain name on it and you can get the domain name for free if you pay for a year in advance. Just could not be easier. Uh, online uh, commerce, the sales stuff, they handle all the tricky stuff, all the encryption and the credit cards and stuff like that. Really, really impressive. Plans start at a ridiculous eight bucks a month. Uh, and like I said, you get a free domain name registration for your site if you sign up for a year in advance. Um, and the demo is no credit card required. You just go there and and just start like typing and playing. You just go to squarespace.com and and just start. And it, you know, it, it you're actually there making a website. Could not be easier. Uh, use the offer code Gruber, my last name, G-R-U-B-E-R, and you will get 10% off your first purchase with Squarespace. If you're listening to this show because John is on it, you can use their code. It's ATP, and you'll get the same 10% off. So Squarespace, build it beautiful. Uh, if you need to build a website, just go check out Squarespace. Spend an hour there. You'll probably end up saving yourself days of work. That's very uh, nice of you to give our code. Oh, it's uh, we're all in it together. It's so short and easy to remember. I hope that's our actual code. No, I know it is. I was listening to your show today, and I took note of it. There you go. You're do doing homework. <laughs> well, I wanted to see what you guys said about the smart battery case. <laughs> I feel like I, my last couple of shows, like I had Joanna Stern on uh, last week, and we've just been like a couple of days away. Like we could have, you know, a couple of days later, and we could have Joanna and I could have gone long on the the battery case. Um, uh, I kind of had a feeling that that's what they were going to make because I didn't know. I didn't. They didn't tell me, but. Um, after the show, when we were still on the air, Joanna said, Hey, did, you know, has Apple been in touch with you about anything? I was like, no, not yet. And she goes, they are with me. And all they wanted to know was what color iPhone I have. Um, 
and that they're going to send me something, you know, to review at the end of the week. Uh, and I, I remember that somebody at Apple, when I went and got my iPad Pro review unit, it was at a briefing in New York, and I was asked, um, which size iPhone do I use? The iPhone 6S or the 6S Plus? And I said 6S, and they were like, good. We might have something for you later, you know, a couple of weeks. And I filed that away at that point. And I thought, what in the world would they make that would apply to the 6S and not apply to the 6S Plus? And the only thing I could think of is a battery pack. That's the only, either a battery pack or, or, or I guess it would have to be a case because if it was a battery pack, it would apply to anything with a lightning port. So I figured it had to be a battery case. Well, it could have been any kind of case, but I, I suppose, you know. Yeah, but why would they make, it, to me, a battery case was specifically the sort of thing that they would make only for the 6S and not the 6S, not the Plus, for the obvious reason that the Plus already gets plenty of battery. They need to make that the same battery case for the Plus. Just like just a huge lump on the back of it. That thing lasts two days. <laughs> it would be you could actually sit there and do like arm curls with it. I think it would so, actually like build your biceps. So how is your? I, one of the things I saw is that our, our uh, friend Cable Sasser, his case was like cracking along the top. But maybe he just got a defective one. I'm assuming yours is fine. What color did he get? He got the black one or the charcoal or whatever. So they sent me the white one. Uh, and that's the only one I have experience with. So mine didn't crack. And what I did is I got I got mine Tuesday morning. So it was the day that they announced it. Like, you know, they had already sent one to me by FedEx. So it was like, you know, FedEx guy showed up at like 10 a.m. and I had it. Um, and I pretty much left it on my phone until I got my review out, which it was obviously, it was a couple of days late. I, I, I let you read it before you guys did ATP. I was like, it'll be up by the time, <laughs> by the time your show is on the air. And you're truly the Douglas Adams of, uh, well, I can't say Douglas Adams of tech running because he wrote for Mac for all their Mac user back right. in the day too. But yeah, those deadlines are great as they wish past your own self-imposed self-declared deadlines. No one was pressuring you to, to say that. You're like, oh, no problem. Yeah. I had a, I had a Wednesday night school thing. It was what the, it's, it's some kind of, uh, you know, showing a, the, I don't know, some kind of projects the kids made at 530 at Jonas's school. And I thought, oh, that's great. I'll just make sure I'm finished by then and I'll have a little self-imposed deadline. And I didn't get it up till Friday. Yeah, but the, I, the idea was that the deadline, that you were sure you were going to make it because you had to, because you had a, a school thing. Right. <laughs> and it turns out when you're self-employed, you don't have to do anything. You know what? It was the, the, the more I thought about it, you know, as often happens that writing, to me, writing is thinking. And uh, the more I wrote about it, the more I realized that it was, it, there were interesting things to pursue and think about and talk about. It, it, you know, sometimes you start writing. I didn't think it was going to be nearly as long as it was. And I didn't think it was. <laughs> that was really like long. the longest thing you've written in a long time. And it was about a battery case. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why it's so, but to me, it, there's so many little interesting things about it. But one of the things I did to motivate myself to finish, I didn't really like having it on my iPhone, but I kept it on my iPhone until I got the review out. So I actually did use it nonstop pretty much other than like to play with, you know, the insertion and removal and, and some, you know, certain things you want to do testing it. Um, I, I would, but for the most part, I had my phone in it from Tuesday till Friday. So I didn't see any kind of cracking or anything like that. Yeah. Maybe taking it in and out causes the cracking. I don't know. It could just, I mean, you would think it was some sort of widespread defect. We would have heard about it by now, but it happens when you get the first ones of anything. Like who knows? Well, yeah. We'll, I think we'll it's, I think it's, I think the first ones of anything, it's, it's likely that it was probably just like maybe some kind of, you know, maybe there was a batch that got a bad batch of the whatever the substance the silicone what do they call it whatever the substance is on the outside yeah. or maybe there was a coating that was supposed to be put on that wasn't put on right 
anyway, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, if you're thinking of getting one, I wouldn't let this stop you because if something like that happens, they're just bring it back to the Apple Store. They could yeah. be a new one. They'll work it out. I will say this. I'm from ATP, you guys were saying, and I know somebody else, in a, I think it was Joanna actually in a review. She, I think she got a white one and said, don't buy the white one because it's already stained. And you guys said, don't buy the white one. I have the white one and I used it nonstop for four days and uh it lo- still looks mint condition didn't pick up pick up any stains so well, I don't... you're very you're very clean right <laughs> i guess the tissue boxes on your feet and you lick yourself clean like a cat and so there's no residue what, what i heard actually after that show is the opposite of people who got the the black one and said it picks up pocket lint like hmm. if you have lint and stuff in your pockets and you put the thing in you take it out to cover with white stuff so it's like white and black cars like choose your poison both of them are going to have something in the environment that's going to stand out more on them I couldn't tell. It, it, it is obviously very, very similar to their non-battery silicone cases in terms of the substance that it's made out of. But it's maybe not quite the same. It actually felt a little grippier to me. The The battery case to me felt grippier than the non-battery case. But on the other hand, the one that I had handy, which was one that Apple gave me with my review unit a couple months ago for the iPhone 6S, was um, blue. And this was only white and black. And maybe there's some, I know with the watch straps, there's definitely a little difference in how they feel. You know, the sport bands, there's the different colors have different levels of like flexibility. Different weights too. Yeah. Different weights even. Um, And I may, you know, that might therefore be true with these two. Maybe the white is somehow grippier. Maybe the white non-battery case is grippier too. I thought it was a little, little too grippy. I thought, you know, and in terms of it actually being thicker, therefore it was a little harder to get in and out of jean pockets. Thickness aside, the the grippiness made it a little, you know, a little bit too much friction, in my opinion. Yeah, that's always the, the balance because I, one of the complaints about uh, other third-party battery cases is they make it slipperier because a lot of them are hard plastic or hard shiny plastic, and then so you end up dropping it also because it's a bigger, more awkward shape sometimes. Um, but if you make it too grippy, it's hard to slide it in and out of a pants pocket, so you just want to find that medium and yeah i totally believe that the black and white ones could feel different and they look in the pictures i've never actually touched one of these things but they look in the pictures like it could also be potentially that whatever material they're making it out of is thicker and you know in the parts that don't have battery in them it's just thicker so it could be squishier it is a little thicker it's definitely like so if you stack it side by side with the the you know so it's resting on like the volume buttons or the power on off switch stack it on the side and compare it side by side with the silicone case it's definitely a little thicker it stands up a little bit more the sides are thicker on this than on the silicone case and if you think about it it makes sense because it's actually a lot more rigid it's you know you can kind of put the phone i think there's a recommended way like the with the silicone cases they recommend to put it in like certain angle first but it doesn't really matter you can just put any side in first and then just sort of squish the the other side over the edge of the iphone with this you have to slide it in like it's in in between the two sides as like a rail it slides in like that and the sides are definitely thicker um i don't know what i think it's because it's meant to be more rugged i think it is sort of a you know they're only advertising it as a battery case but i think it's also apple's answer to what if you want a more protective case for drops and stuff like that yeah, I mean, once you're going to have that giant thing on there anyway, there's no sense trying to skimp around the edges to try to make it look svelte because it's not going to. Right. I, I thought on the ATP, I thought you were the only one who was really reasonable. I Marco and Casey made me a little angry with their, their <laughs> take on it. I thought Marco was way too dismissive about it. As a, what did he call it? Like an, he said it looks like an engineering prototype. Yeah. 
Like I do, and this is the thing that gets me is I, I thought I did a pretty good job in my article, and then on Twitter, you know, there's a handful of people. Like, oh, of course, John Gruber likes it. And it's like I, I didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't really a overly positive review, and I ended it with saying that I don't want to use it, <laughs> and I called it weird and funny looking, and ungainly. It's. It, it wasn't like I was entirely complimentary. It was like I just want to understand why they made it. Yeah, and or I, or just like especially in things like this where it's like a visceral reaction based on appearances. There's usually, and I use lots of car analogies on ATP, coming from the car world, like stuff like that can be polarizing, like the physical shape of an object whose purpose is mostly not dictated by its shape. People have strong opinions about, you know, Porsche 911 versus Corvette versus a Mustang. Like these are very different looking things. And in the grand scheme of things, their engines and wheels and aerodynamics aside, there are lots of features of cars that look the way they look uh, for for just aesthetic design reasons. So anything like that, where you look at a picture of something, as so many people did on the internet, look at a picture of this thing, and had just have this negative gut reaction to it, and these articles come flying of like, what's happening to Apple design or whatever, you really want to understand, like, what what is a reasonable rationale for this? And you could come to the conclusion that there is no rationale, that, that this is just like, it's the simplest thing they could possibly do, and... Uh, you know, they were just lazy or didn't have time or like or whatever. But with Apple, knowing everything we know about Apple, like that just doesn't seem plausible because no one was demanding that they release a battery case. Right. And it's like, and who really cares in the grand scheme of things, right? Um, but this is what they came out with. So you, you want to think about it. Like, and so that's why I was going into the philosophy. Like, is is there an explanation? Because this is an area where Apple won't talk to the press for the most part. It's like, oh, let's have uh, someone from Apple's design studio. Not Johnny Ive because he's busy, but someone lower level make the rounds to the tech press. To, no, not really. That's not going to happen, right? And, and nor should they. Because like aesthetics, it's like, look, this is the product we have and we'll see what the reaction to it is. But we think it's, it makes sense in some way. And how could they think this makes sense? So I was going back through what have they said in the past publicly about past designs that could conceivably apply to this design. Whether they're true or not, who knows? We're just speculating. But the bottom line is, if you think it's ugly, you think it's ugly. Um, don't buy it. Buy one that you think is not ugly. <laughs> right? I, that, I, I mean, And the other thing, and I feel like maybe in my article I didn't cover this enough, is afterwards, is... It, it, if you're wondering why it doesn't look just like a Mophie, whatever juice pack air, whatever their thinnest one is, which is of course the one that Apple, if Apple was going to go that direction, they'd make the thinnest. They're not going to make one of these, you know, the cases that have 3000, uh, what's the unit? Milliamp hours, milliamp hours. Um, it's so much easier to write MAH. Um, why doesn't it look like those, which is really like sort of the standard for all of them? Well, of, co of course, they're not going to make one like that, because if they thought that was the right way to do it, they don't have to do anything. They're already there. There's the Apple store, you know, are filled with these battery cases that look like that. The only reason for them to make one is, to, is if they had an idea that was different. Well, and also, like, I think this is a factor. Like, if they, they know a lot of people buy battery cases. Why? Why shouldn't they have one? And, and not because, like, they just they need to get that money or whatever. But it's it's like as a. It's the same thing with diversifying the phone line. Why don't they make a big phone? Why shouldn't they make a smaller phone? Why don't they make something in colors? It's like, if it's something that people want and they're buying it anyway, why shouldn't Apple make a really good one? Right? It's, you know, why rely on third parties to fill that role? And so battery cases have apparently passed into the realm of things that are important enough and that are widely purchased enough that Apple feels like it should have a first party solution. Uh, and so they do. Like, I, I mean, I still have questions about the case in terms of how they came up with this compromise, because it's like, if, you, if you're going to be this bulky, 
like you said the same thing like why not extend the battery up to the top and bottom why not go edge to edge with it um like why why not match the capacity of similar thickness battery cases and and you know apple has its explanations or, which may or may not be rationalizations but in the end of a lot of it really does come down to design because you have to pick a size and a shape and that dictates how much battery life you have and let's say someone was really wedded to this design and they thought aesthetically it was beautiful and perfect and pure and what they wanted, then the aesthetic design could dictate the size of the battery as opposed to the other way around. It's it's hard to know without actually talking to the people behind the design. Um, all we can do out here is speculate. And really on ATP, I wasn't going to dismiss anyone else's theories about like that there was time crunch or that uh, you know, they, like they didn't put in the effort they normally. For all I know, maybe this was Russian. I don't know what's going on inside Apple, right? But is there a plausible explanation that uh, that you can say this was actually designed with the same care as every other Apple thing is designed with, or we're led to believe every other Apple thing is designed with? Is that even plausible? And I can come up with plausible explanations for it. So, in the absence of any other information, you just have to kind of like say which one of those do you think is more likely? I think it's so the the hump is so striking that i i think it it really had to be the result i think it would be i think the I, I really doubt that it was the first idea they came up with it's so unusual and it is at first glance i think almost it's almost impossible to say that it's not a little repulsive at first it, it just looks swollen in a way you know like uh you know like when you get stung by a bee and and you know like you get stung on your thumb and your thumb swells up to the the base of your thumb swells up to the size of a golf ball like it looks painful when you see somebody with an injury that's swollen it, it's like ooh you 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 feel it it that's what it looks it looks swollen which is not a good look at least at first but i found myself after a few days i kind of got used to it it's just i stopped thinking of it as supposing as being supposed to look like a regular case and that it just looks like it has a battery on the back yeah and like i would another possibility again having not actually ever touched one of these i can't say although maybe you can tell me uh what you think about this like uh a lot of oxo good grips uh like kitchen things look kind of weird looking and ugly too uh but they're good to hold and yeah. so if you prioritize how good is this thing to hold? I'm not saying this is what they did because I think the back of it is not shaped like any part of the human hand. Human hand doesn't have like rounded rectangle divots in it or anything, but maybe some aspect, like you said, holding your pinky under the lump instead of under the bottom of the thing, like that could be a factor in it. Like it doesn't mean that they're right. Or so right. you're just trying to delve like what motivated this? Why? Because as you said, it's so it's so striking that it it seems clear that uh, this was an intentional thing. You don't accidentally make this battery case. If you if you wanted to do something lazy, it would just look like every other battery case. And I think Apple would make something look more like they make. Hell, they make silicone cases look pretty much like every other silicone case. It's just why does Apple have one? Because they want to make a nice one. And why shouldn't you buy the Apple one if you're in the Apple store? Like it makes perfect sense. It it in addition to putting your pinky underneath, the putting your index finger on top of it is pretty good too. And it does sort of in a weird way, it makes it feel as though you're holding a smaller device. Like it, you know that it's thicker, but it's like you have these like from going back to like the old iPhone days with the first few generations when they were physically smaller and it was a lot easier to kind of get your index fingers on top while you still had some kind of reasonable, you know, and it felt like you could hold it more securely because your fingers wrapped around it. Your fingers can wrap around the hump in a way um, that gives you a secure hold. If I were going to, 
and I knew in advance that I could pack it. If I knew that I were going to be using my iPhone camera to record, uh, I don't know, like while I'm riding on a roller coaster or something like that, I would put it in this case. Like battery, even if the battery was completely depleted and I wasn't going to get 1% of charge from it, I would put my iPhone in that case to hold it while I'm going down a roller coaster because I feel like I can get like a way more secure grip on that because of the material that it's made of and because of the hump. The hump actually gives you like a good place to put fingers. How many trips to Disney do you have to take before you realize it is incredibly dangerous to take movies with your iPhone on a roller? It's like a million signs. Like do not oh, I, try I, to take I, movies. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. And it's not even because uh, I wouldn't do it just because I, it, it would just ruin, it would <laughs> like imagining me ru- dropping my iPhone on a roller coaster at Disney would, just the thought of it puts puts me in such a bad. It's not that it's getting hit hit in the face at ninety miles an hour <laughs> right. with someone else's phone because <laughs> right. like you do it at the top of the loop or whatever. Like it's Six Flags, there. So like I guess Disney, they I don't know how they manage it at Disney, but at Six Flags, they had you going through like metal detectors, so, like nothing yeah. in your pockets, like literally, like it was like going through the TSA, like yeah. you know, no, no, you know. No car keys, no phones of any kind, just like a nothing. Because well, and at Six Flags, the roller coasters go way faster too. Yeah, I was saying like the roller coaster is going 60, 70, 80 miles an hour and your phone is essentially stationary because it's like falling from above and you your face meets that essentially stationary phone. That's not a good experience for anybody. You kill somebody one of those things. So kids, no, no uh, taking movies on roller coasters. Yeah, I'm not saying it as though I would do it. I'm just saying that if I were in an, a, a precarious situation yeah. and needed to have a grip on my phone, that you should that, do it, something else that people can relate to. How about going yachting? If you're if you're going yachting, if you were doing Duran Duran, now it's too old. They don't get that. If you're doing, if you're in the video for Rio and you're on the front of the yacht and you want to take a movie of it because it's really cool looking, bring the bring the iPhone battery case. I thought you had a good point on ATP about it looking like a, a sci-fi. Like if you just paved a hallway with them, yeah. like use them as the tiles, like the subway. You know, like the way that the subway a hallway in the subway station has tiles. Tile it with these. It would look like a great, uh, you know. Like a, you're in the set of like a one of Ridley Scott's, you know, classic sci-fi. Movies. Yeah, or like 60, 70 sci-fi. Like you know, do like, uh, you know, I mean, even 2001 era, but an right. alien or just, you know, anything like Buck Rogers. Like they, I guess that's the way they did, you know, the future was going to be like white and clean and smooth shapes everywhere. Yeah. And but like, you know, some kind of inexplicable uh, ridges and textures, though, you know. Yeah. Like, like on a stormtrooper, like the stormtrooper's got the little thermos on his back. You know, what yeah. the hell is that for? Well, I'm sure someone with the technical readout books knows. But like, the, you just it was always smooth and white, but there was these lumps and they seemed purposeful and it looked like futury. I actually, and it might just be because I've got Star Wars on, on the mind this week, but I actually thought, or as soon as I saw it, I thought, boy, this is a real stormtroopery looking thing. Because it, it even has a little bit of black around the, uh, the cutout for the camera. Um, and the way that it's not white, but sort of like an off-white, and yeah, the ridges, the extra ridges, some of them seem, which seem maybe a little inexplicable. Uh, it, there's a certain stormtrooperiness to it. It doesn't wait for the uh, the next version to look like the surface of the Star Destroyer with little greeblies or whatever they are all over, like little pipes and everything all over. I'm, I'm thinking of other ways this case could have existed. Like, um, you never see the back of a Nexus Seven, like the old Nexus Sevens. I don't think so. Which it's like. Were, it was like rubber and it had like cross hatching kind of. Oh, like little, yeah. I know what you mean. I little mean. divots coming. This could have like little lumps on it, like a, well, think of a golf ball where it has little, uh, you know, uh, concave 
things, mm. or it could be the opposite. It could have convex things, like a bunch of like bumps on it. I mean, they could have been textured in so many different ways. Again, just completely aesthetically speaking, because it's not, or maybe there would be some functional grip there, but this one is, there's one lump, but the surface treatment is essentially smooth. These all seem like intentional aesthetic choices that that weren't necessarily foregone conclusions, that there is some kind of philosophy behind this design. Uh, yeah, I, and texture is going to come back at some point. It's, I feel like we're in a, a era when texture has sort of fallen out of favor, perhaps largely driven by Apple, but it'll it'll come back eventually. Do you remember the, uh, what was it? I forget which case it was. The ones with the holes cut out on it? The colored ones with the holes cut out from Apple? Colored what? Cases. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The ones for the uh, the, the 5C. Right. And, the, and yeah, so it, it would show the words through it. And we were complaining about how it didn't like center on the words correctly. But that was essentially textured because you had these holes in the case that would feel like you'd feel right. them with your fingers. Yeah. Um, I was going to, yeah, that would be good for another show. I was going to say, because, you know, everything they make now is made out of this. I don't even know if they call it bead blasted anymore, but it's this aluminum that has the same feel. The phones have this aluminum. The MacBooks have this feel. The even my iMac has the same is made out of the same stuff. But eventually, they're going to switch to a new material from aluminum. Yeah, we talked about that in ATP a few times, especially with uh, respect to phones. The aluminum and glass thing is going to seem as barbaric as CRT uh, video displays do to us now. Like, you mean it was this big, heavy glass thing with like lead on it and electron gun? And like, how thick was the glass? And like, that just seems barbaric, right? Aluminum glass phones, like the idea that, you know, for our grandkids, the idea that if you dropped your phone on the sidewalk, that it would break, it's going to sound idiotic. It's going to sound like like we were using the glass shampoo bottles from Prell again. Like, why would you bring glass into the shower? That's so stupid. Why don't you use plastic, right? But right now... Or that you're, like, when eyeglasses were made out of glass. Yeah. <laughs> right, shatter and just go into your eyeball and, you know... It's like you do the best with the materials you have. And aluminum glass, like it took them a while to get to that. And, you know, the, lots of plastic and plastic is pretty good material, too, especially for radio reception and titanium. But like they went with aluminum and glass because I feel like it's just a, a higher quality experience. Like it feels nicer and more expensive. Glass, obviously, in the screen is better than plastic, as we learned from the iPod Nano. Like the plastic is going to scratch. So you want something that's scratch resistant for the screen. And then aluminum for the back is just, I mean, 3GS was plastic, but the the you know and they use glass for the four and four s and like but aluminum and glass is a pretty solid combo right now and to get better than it you basically need something that's not going to shatter so it has to be more flexible for the display and for the back part i guess you'd probably have to go with something that's equal strength but lighter so like graphite composite plus really hard flexible screens uh you know or as i've always said get the thing down to the size and weight of a credit card and it really doesn't much matter right. what material you make it out of because you drop your credit card on the pavement and it just you pick it back up like it's not nothing's going to happen to it it weighs too little that air resistance becomes a factor that doesn't even fall that fast and if it does it's flexible enough that it's not going to shatter or break yeah i thought of an idea i was thinking about drops today i was watching jonas play destiny and he jumped off a giant cliff and it seemed like he should have taken damage and didn't i was like how come you don't take damage and he goes oh you just you have like some kind of jets on your feet or something, you know, like a jet. You play the game, so you know. They're, but so you need you, to give me his PSN name. I'll help him out, or uh, he'll help me out. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I'll hook you up. Uh, 
And I thought, oh, that's clever. And then I watched it, you know, so it's more or less like your Boba Fett, you jump off a thing and at the very end, you just put on your jetpack a little bit to slow down. I thought, you know, that would be a clever thing for an iPhone to have. <laughs> if you dropped it, if it had like <laughs> that, a little... That is the Jetsons era solution to this problem. You know, we right. could do, if, they, if everything had jets. <laughs> just slow just down the puff, just enough. Just a puff to... of air at the last moment would keep yeah, it from... and to gently land. Uh, but you're right, you know, something like that. But something's got to... I think the other thing that's going to seem barbaric is the way that with the uh, everything made out of aluminum that they're they're like can you even imagine how much raw aluminum apple is sending to china every single day that's just being cut into these shapes by the the cnc machines well i mean the great thing about aluminum is all the shavings and scraps and crap that come off of the machine like all the material that is removed that can just go back into the whole recycling thing is you know it just it just it's not it's not waste in the sense that you can just recycle that, melt it back down, and put it into another ingot, and it comes back to you. Uh, but it's a tremendous amount of stuff that they're just cutting, which is an incredibly difficult process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, but it's it's what they settled on, and we saw. I mean, we all we all saw the development of like how can you make a sturdy laptop that's also thin, but that doesn't creak or crack or break or feel cheap. And they tried lots and lots of different things. And boy, this one with the original MacBook Air, the the machined out piece of aluminum just seems great. I mean, eventually they'll get to the point where they're kind of getting to that now with the MacBook One, where it's like, strength of materials at this thickness? Do I feel like I can take this MacBook? Uh, I'm talking, the MacBook One is ATP parlance for the MacBook that only has one port on the side of it. Just It's just called the MacBook. Anyway, can I bend this over my knee? Because it looks like <laughs> I might be able to bend this over my knee, and that's not a comfortable feeling. Like, eventually aluminum becomes no good because... At certain thin, you know, thickness, if it gets very thin, you can bend it and it stays bent. And that's not really a good thing. That's why you think about things like carbon fiber, where they bend but spring back. And they're also very light and very strong and so on and so forth. Well, they switched this year to a new aluminum for the phones. So though they look the same, the 6S and 6S Plus are made from this new, was it 7000 series, whatever they want to call it. But it's Apple's new fancy pants version of aluminum. Um and who knows, maybe they have, you know, maybe maybe this, it'll be take a lot longer than I think. And maybe a couple of years from now, they're going to have 8,000 series aluminum. I don't know. But I kind of feel like by upgrading the aluminum they've used, that they're sort of approaching, this is as good as it's going to get. And that's... Well, yeah, but it's like they're, they're holding back the tide in that one because it's kind of like samurai swords where you can pick like flexibility or hardness and you want, you know, hardness on the on the edge, the sharp edge, because you want it to be sharp and be able to cut through things. But if it's that hardness through the whole blade, the blade will shatter when you hit something. So you need a core that's flexible, right? So going with with the aluminum, like it's not they're making up these new things. So you can make aluminum, you can decide, do I want it to be very strong and hard or do I want it to be like malleable and flexible and not not that it's going to shatter or anything but like with the aluminum what they're doing now is well we still want to make the phones really thin we want to make them harder to bend and so can we make it so this is stronger aluminum hopefully maintaining the weight but at a certain point like if you know like aluminum foil certain point it's gonna bend and what you need is a material that springs back and aluminum is not going to spring back so you will reach a limit in in thickness uh, where aluminum is just a non-starter because if you just keep saying, well, just make it so strong that you can't bend it, that will, you won't be able to do that at a certain point. It'll just be too darn thin. So there, a material revolution will come eventually. And I'm sure Apple has been for many years now researching what will replace aluminum, if anything, in our things. Is, is it time to try to do a carbon fiber foam? Because it would be great for radio reception and it would spring back better than uh, than aluminum does. And we wouldn't have to worry about bend gate as much. But, you know, can we manufacture it? 
in the oh. designs that we want to. We can't you can't machine carbon fiber. You have to mold it, and it's really complicated and super expensive. And so, I think from, we'll be waiting a while. From the land of fantasy rumors, based on like patent filings and stuff, there's the liquid metal stuff that people have been fantasizing about for years. So who knows? Maybe there's something like that too. Oh. Or in the Jetson puffer jet thing, you can have that material <laughs> where uh, where you can bend it, but if you subject it to some sort of like if you put it back in heat or, or you're like apply electricity to it, it, it goes back into the original shape. Remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> the circuit boards inside don't really like bending too much either, by the way. So, all right, let me take one last break here and then we can talk about Star Wars. Um, uh, I want to tell you about our last sponsor. It's our good friends at Harry's. Now, the holiday season is here. This show will be airing tomorrow, December 14th. Uh, I think it's up till December 18th. Free shipping is over, but they, if you order up to the 18th, um, holiday shipping, economy shipping for the holidays ends on the 18th. So you got a couple of days. This, you're probably listening to it if you're a fan of the show, because I feel like this is going to be big news that, that, uh, Craig Federighi was on the show. You've got till December 18th. You can order, you can pay for economy shipping. It'll get there before Christmas. What a great gift if there's any kind of men, fathers, brothers, husbands uh, in your life. You can just buy them uh, the holiday kit. They've got these holiday kits um, with razor blade, with the handle, with uh, some shaving cream and stuff. They sent me one that had uh, uh, this facial stuff, you know, uh, you know, you clean your face with it. I like it. It's good. My skin looks good with it. Uh, really cool stuff. Awesome, you know, packaging. This is one of those things you give them a gift. If you want to give somebody a gift with a razor and stuff like that, give them these Harry's things. They open it up. It looks great. It makes you look like you have good taste. Um, go there, check out these holiday kits and, uh, really great prices too. Uh, high quality blade, high quality shaving creams and lotions and, uh, gels, whatever you want in the thing. Uh, so go there, save yourself the hassle. I hate Christmas shopping. Good God almighty. This is like the most stress. I, it's the worst. So I'm just, you just buy people stuff from uh, sponsors of the show and then you're done with it. Get them a mattress and get them a shaving kit from, from Harry's. Um, where do you go to find out more? Go to, uh, harrys.com and then use this code talk show. Know the, and their code either use that code and, uh, you'll save five bucks off your order. And remember, you got till the 18th, December 18th, 2015, and you can still get it uh, express shipping for the holidays. You're worried about that? I'm worried. I'm, I'm worried to death about uh, I've, I've had two things on my mind the last week, John. I've had I found out I, you know, I was stressing over this interview with Craig Federighi. I wanted to do a good job with that. And I don't want to have any Star Wars spoilers. And now I've got this interview out of the way. We've got a nice little post interview discussion with me and you about it. I feel a great sense of relief. And there are, right now, as I speak to you on Sunday, December 13th, I, I'm now I'm, I'm breaking out into a sweat worrying about spoilers for The Force Awakens. At least you can just hide in your house. I've got to go to an office filled with people who people who may be watching the trailers and reading every single thing they can find out about these things. And as you approach the date, you're right. It's like when you get close to an Apple event, like the day before, that's when the real leaks start coming. Like, oh, you know, here's what's actually going to come out. And you find it after the fact. Actually, that that, you know, seven hour before thing was 100 percent true. <laughs> my, friend, my friend Moises uh, Chalou, he, he's down in Austin. He's a big film film uh Fan. He, he's trying to get in he's trying to angle his way into the press screening down there which is tuesday morning but i think the big the big one is in los angeles tomorrow i think it's on monday so i feel like and, and the critics i think usually know you know to keep 
keep their spoilers to themselves, but that it's not just like a, it's not a critics only screening, like all sorts of in, anybody who's anybody in Hollywood can go to the screening on Monday night and blab about whatever the secrets are. So now I don't know what to do. And you just gotta like, just think about like the stupid think pieces that are going to be like, I can't believe they did this thing in star Wars. <laughs> right. And people got to have a big think piece about what it means for the franchise. Like no one's even seen the movie yet. Don't have the think pieces on it. And that, and that that's going to make people go like they're like, that's, that's right. going to make people want to read the story and I don't want to know. So, and I can't hide from the world. Like I can, I can ignore the internet, but if there's people at the office who have read the think pieces and are discussing how amazing it is, the Jar Jar Binks comes back and destroys everybody. Like, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> right. And I'm so worried that it will, it'll pop up in one of those, you know, like when you get to the bottom of an article on most news sites today and they have these all other things around the web, you might want to know. Um, I, I'm so worried that the you know, and like you said, that they're just going to put the spoiler right in the goddamn headline, and it'll be right there in front of. Uh, my of eyeballs. course, it'll be because it'll be a think piece that assumes everybody already knows the spoiler, and it's like, <laughs> now I want to discuss the spoiler, right? <laughs> I am. I'm. I don't know. It's almost like worse that I've been successful at keeping myself almost entirely spoiler free, um, and I also have a. I, I have a good ability. You know, maybe it, it's a bad ability in the long run, but in certain aspects, but at least for this movie, I can willfully forget some, some things. And so uh, I don't have that ability. <laughs> so like, I, I'm, I can't even think there's been like at least two minor spoilers that I've encountered in the last few weeks. And as I speak to you right now, I can't bring them to mind. And I think I could, if I tried, but I've, I have, you know, there's a, a, a weird ability in my mind to compartmentalize where I've, I've kept them away. And when I see them in the movie, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I knew that. But I'd forgotten it. But yeah. I'll remember that I knew it. I can do that. Um, I'm trying to just, like, not think about the things I already know. The few tidbits. Because if I think about them, I'll figure crap out. So I just, like, I just avoid that part of my mind. Like, don't even think about that. I don't know if that's going to work. But it's the same type of thing. Like, once it once I see it in the movie, it'll be like, yeah, I could have derived that from the information I had at hand. But I didn't want to. So here's what I've done. I just to be clear, I did watch the first trailer, uh, and and then I inst as soon as it was over, I was excited, and then I hit play again and watched it again, and then I thought, shit, why did I watch that? I shouldn't have watched that. I now I feel like I've already had things spoiled, and I I know that J.J. Abrams is sort of an anti-spoiler uh, director, and largely it seems so far they've kept a lot of stuff under wraps. It really seems like. I could be wrong. Maybe there's other websites where like the whole thing is spoiled. I haven't seen it. Uh, I trusted him to make a trailer that didn't really have spoilers. I wouldn't say that it did. I think it was a good trailer, but I still regretted it. I still regretted it. I regret that I've seen the stupid lightsaber with the, the, the side blades. Yeah. I mean, so I, I watched the first trailer too, just because I was so desperate to know, like, what is this going to be like? Like, what is what is it even going to look like? Because because all bets were off. Like, who knows where they were going to go with this franchise? It, it could have. Was it going to look like the trailer for Prometheus and be like dark and gritty? Was it going to look like Tomorrowland and be happy and like like how? What is their what was their take on Star Wars going to be? So I felt like I had to watch the first trailer. But after that, I've been off and like so far, my barriers held up pretty well through a series of filters and and people who are nice to me and everything. But uh, the one, the one place that's been uh, tearing down a little bit is television shows. I almost, almost don't even want to tell you this, but um, I discovered by thirty seconds skipping through ads on my TiVo 
as the 30 second skip went by, occasionally a frame uh. that, I, that my mind would register as Star Wars would come by. And it was enough for me to know that, oh my God, they're running they're running Star Wars TV ads. I don't know if you knew this, but I, on, I, on television, there are I, ads for this movie. I did, and it's my, my weakness for sports got me. I was watching, I watched the Dallas Cowboys uh, Redskins on Monday Night Football. And uh, I, it's, apparently it seemed to me as though uh, that... Disney had purchased a commercial in every, at least one commercial in every single commercial break, like a true carpet bombing marketing campaign. And it's, there is, you know, there's, I, I, I took to like skipping through the commercials, like with my, this is, like you couldn't do it, but I skipped through the commercials with my good eye closed. <laughs> And so I was only using my... You're only listening with your good ear. My damaged left eye, which I could still see certain things and, and <laughs> had like a sense of some things that were going on and like, oh, that's a red lightsaber. But it's like, I, at least the details were blurred out. Yeah, when I saw the the single frames, I got nothing from it. And I was I was satisfied with that because every, like because most of the time I would see zero frames. And like once every five shows, I would see one frame depending on where it landed. But the other day, the very first commercial... Like the very first commercial in the commercial break was a Star Wars one, and I got like half a sentence out. I'm like, oh, <laughs> damn it! Like, because you know, you're not you got to find the remote, you got to pick it up, you got to, you know what I mean? Like, I was I was too slow on the draws. Like in the old West, I got I got shot. <laughs> I really don't know how this week is going to go, especially once people start saying I got my tickets. My first screening is Thursday night, which it seems like cheating to me. If it if it premieres on Friday, I don't know how I'm going to a 10 o'clock Thursday Yeah, some, some I mentioned that too, and someone was saying like it was because of that, uh, it was after that, I don't know if this is true, after that Aurora shooting in, in Colorado that the midnight showing stopped being at midnight. I, I feel like that was happening before that, but who knows? Oh, but anyway, yeah. So it's like, it's like, it's like, uh, so my 10 o'clock Thursday night screening is a midnight screening, but there's like an asterisk, which is, we know it's not really midnight. Right, and that, like they do 7 p.m. screens. Like the midnight show is now at 7 p.m. It's, right. like, it's like, uh, you know, Christmas creep or anything. I assume the midnight showing will be like the Wednesday before. Yeah, or it's like the Saturday night 7 o'clock mass mm -hmm. if you're Catholic. It's like, yep. well, we're calling it Sunday. It's Sunday somewhere. Yeah, my, so my, my showing is on Thursday as well. Yeah, so, I, you know, then Friday I'm going to spoil everything. <laughs> I'm going to spoil everything for everybody else. I'll just feel so much better if I make it into that. And like I said, the the, the, the most dangerous time, I said this in the encounter, the most dangerous time is when you're waiting in line to get oh. into the theater and people are coming out of the theater, especially if it's a theater that doesn't exit them out the back. Like if the people who are done seeing the movie walk piece past the people who are still waiting to see the movie, super dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Famous. Everybody has famous. Maybe it's even uh, uh, apocryphal stories of waiting in line for the Empire Strikes Back and then some dipshit runs by and purposefully screams at the top of his lung darth is luke's father yeah and in the age of internet trolling i remember seeing this terrible youtube video of someone driving a car past the people lined up waiting for like whatever it was the the fifth book or some harry potter book where something dramatic happens uh, that people didn't expect and so people are waiting in line at the bookstore <laughs> to get like an opening night to buy the copy of the book and someone like films it for youtube and drives past and yells a phrase that i'm not going to yell because it will spoil <laughs> harry potter for a bunch of little kids listening to this but yells it to the entire line and the worst part is like they don't know if it's true he could the person could be making stuff up but in your heart of hearts like as you're reading the book as they approach you're like that guy was right and he ruined it for me <laughs> is the, don't be that person that's that's the worst thing ever What's the only Star Wars movie that doesn't take have some part of it take place on Tatooine? Is it one of the fake ones? 
No, it's not one of the fake ones. Oh, uh, Empire, I guess, Empire. right? No, yeah. all the fake ones have scenes on Tatooine. Yeah, you're right. I thought... In special edition, did they add any Tatooine parts to Empire? I don't remember. <laughs> just so that just... they had, they added Coruscant to Jedi. Who knows what the hell they're adding? <laughs> that would have been the worst if they. It's like in, in between a cutaway, this big circular white from Dagobah. They, instead of going to the asteroid field, they they cut to the, uh, the some droids tootling around in the in the sand. Yeah, or like uh, like when they first start hunting for the Millennium Falcon, like they, there's a phone call from Darth Vader to to, <laughs> yeah. to Boba Fett and jo- well... Jabba's palace, like. Come here, I need you. Yeah, so what Lucas was really concerned about is like, how did those bounty hunters all get onto the Death Star? I want to see them. <laughs> Remember when he did that change for Jedi? It's like that he showed like Vader's shuttle taking him from point A to point B so we weren't confused about how he arrived, like at Cloud City or whatever. It's like, right. we get it. They flew there in their spaceships. We don't need to see it. <laughs> I think he, I, uh, uh, I don't even want to get into what he added. It's the some of the additions though like there's the when you get into the list of like what was taken out of the despecialized or whatever you want to call it the ones that were taken out of the despecialized you know shami's dat prince or the the you know what was added to the specialized everybody thinks of han shot han shooting first and all of these gratuitous things and the ridiculous cgi backgrounds they put behind the windows of bespin and all these things that really really stand out or or the the, the god-awful cgi stuff they added to Mos eisley in in a new hope um it's the little things, though. Like your anger, your boiling anger is over these big, ugly changes that really stand out and just don't add anything and take away some of the magic. But then when you read some of the little things that that Lucas had added, you're like, what? What this man went insane? Like it's the little things that make you realize that he he somehow lost his marbles. The one I I had forgotten about until I was reminded. I think in some Slack channel somewhere. I think they were talking to you about it. Was the uh, Dagobah when uh, R2 gets spit out of the, the big uh, swamp creature and uh, the the actual line in the movie is you're lucky you don't taste very good that's what Luke says to him which is a good laugh line you know whatever for a silly situation and he changed it to a less funny line like it's not like well, he was like you're lucky you got out of there it's like yeah. no no the first the first one was better it was adding a little bit of levity it was sarcastic it was and Luke is kind of like sarcastic and and a little bit cranky in that scene so it's perfect like you're lucky you don't taste very good you're lucky you got out of there that's your improvement it's like you know when you bring someone in to punch up a script this is the opposite this is the guy who unpunches it punches it down (laughs) It, it it's that's a perfect example maybe the canonical example maybe that's like the best example because it 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 sounds inconsequential but it was a little funny and then it's not funny at all and it also was like uh, establishes the characters. It is like, hey, Luke and R2 have a uh, a, a friendship, right? It's not just a, a device that's owned by Luke. He's, you know, there's a rapport between these two. And you know, everybody who's seen the first one knows that R2-D2 is clearly a sort of sarcastic wise-ass, right? He's a wise-ass robot. You don't know what he's saying, but you can tell from 3PO's responses that he's a, he's a, a wise-ass. And Luke is giving it back to him. It it actually is meaningful in some small way in terms of shaping the relationship between the characters. <laughs> it, and it fits perfectly in that scene. Like I think one of my favorite cuts in the, in the Dagobah sequence is where, like, Luke is just like his, he just crashed his ship. Everything's all crappy, and it's like his droid was attacked by a monster and spit out, and he's covered with with water, and his droid's covered with mud. And he's like, I don't even know what we're doing here. And R two, like to end the scene, R two expels mud from one of his vents. The top <laughs> goes, <laughs> and like that basically sums it up. Like it just, it, it's like slapstick, slapstick comedy, but uh, comedy, but also commentary on the situation, which is, you know what, this is crap. We're <laughs> 
we're not doing well here. Uh, so to wrap it up, what what is your expectation going? Do you think this is going to be a movie that makes you happy, or do you think it's going to be another disappointment? Do you have show notes? You should put the incomparable episode where we talked about this in the show notes. So I will. It's an entire episode of the incomparable about uh, anticipating the, the Force Awakens, and uh, to sum up what I said there, I'm of two minds about it. On the one hand, when I when I dwell on it a little bit, I start to get com- depressed because I'm like, there's just no way that this can be as meaningful to me as the original three movies are, which is fine. Like, you know, whatever, like uh, I start to think that there's just no way this can be as meaningful to me because things you experience in your formative years always have a certain extra amount of impact. Um, but on the other hand, I say, well, but isn't it possible? It's not as if as an adult, it is impossible to get to me. It's impossible to be affecting. And I was, what I try to do is think of what media movies or whatever have seen as an adult that have like really stuck with me and affected me just basically to put like, what, what is the bar? Like, have I just become such a jaded individual that no movie can really get to me? And so I should just put that out of my mind. The star Wars is not going to be like that. And what I came back to was like a, a lot of the Miyazaki movies I saw as an adult really stick with me and are meaningful and important movies that I would put right up there with the star Wars movies. And that maybe they're not as big because they, I didn't see them in my formative years, but I saw them as an adult. And basically what I'm doing is I'm reassuring myself that, that a movie can get to me. And so that's the top bar. And then the other thing I have to say uh, is like, so it's you've decided that you as an adult are able to be affected by a movie. What if you watch this movie, this new Star Wars movie, and it's merely a pretty good movie? Are you okay with that? And what I used was the Star Trek movies, like the recent reboot Star Treks. I enjoyed those. And when I've rewatched them, I said, you know what? This was a fun movie, but I don't really care that much about Star Trek. So there's way less baggage there. But what I've been trying to think about is if I go into this movie... It's not the most amazing movie I ever saw, but it's competently made. It's fun. It's exciting. I have fun watching it. Do I say, yeah, but it was Star Wars and it's supposed to be way better than that? Or do I am I able to enjoy it the same way that I could enjoy those Star Trek movies that I care way, way less about? Um, and I don't know what the answer to that is. But really, what I've come down to is I think I believe it is possible for, for this movie to be really important and meaningful. Uh, I pro- I think it probably won't be. And I'm trying to be okay with with it merely being a good, fun movie and just me being so much so excited that it wasn't like the prequels. I uh, my big fear is I feel like the big problem with the prequels was well, there's so many and we and we've talked <laughs> we've talked about them at length on this show and others. But it, to me, at a fundamental level, it's that the, the characters were flat and the dialogue was flat and there is no camaraderie. And and no and 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 in plot wise and story wise, there was no sense of mystery. In fact, the whole point of the prequel trilogy was to explain all the mysteries that that the original trilogy lied on. And I've said this before; like it always seemed like the original trilogy could have, you know. And there were rumors from when we were kids that Lucas would the next three movies wouldn't be after the Return of the Jedi; they would be before when Ben Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker were younger. Um, and it always seemed like, well, of course he could do that because, my God, there's so much stuff that they could explain. What the hell the Clone Wars were, how the Emperor came to be, how the Emperor Empire came to be. All of these things could you know, could be a movie. But the fact that they were, were mysteries or were only gently or vaguely alluded to, uh, it gave a weight to the original trilogy that the prequels didn't have because all they tried to do was piss away and explain everything, right down to explaining how the Force worked. Um I don't think that's going to be a problem. I feel like J.J., one thing J.J. Abrams knows how to do is have 
engaging characters and, and a sense of camaraderie and 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 good a, 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 a good ear for dialogue. My big concern is that the the modern uh, needs or or perceived needs in Hollywood of a big budget action movie are such that it, there's no way you know it, it's still going to be filled with 110 minutes of CGI action chases. Yeah, I talked about that in the incomparable too, in the context of like modern movie making sensibilities. Um, because this uh, using the Star Treks again as an example, you've seen those, right? The the yeah, J. J. Abrams, yeah, I like them, Star, especially Star, Star Trek rather. Yeah, especially like the first one. Yeah, and so those definitely look at Star Trek with modern movie making sensibilities, and I like them. Like I, I thought they were enjoyable, but but you have to say like those movies are Star Trek as reimagined through the through the lens of a modern filmmaker. And for the Star Wars things, I I really fervently hope that JJ uh, is a big enough Star Wars fan that what they do what he does instead is you know, this there's, there's a certain Star Wars magic that I want to feel in this movie. Not that it's any worse or better than modern movie making sensibilities, but it's a different set of sensibilities that inform the original trilogy. And I feel like those those still work and are still fresh. So I want this movie to feel like Star Wars first and foremost. I don't want it to feel like Star Wars as seen through the lens of a modern filmmaker. And there's and it's a continuum. I'm not saying it's like you're on one side of it on the other, but I desperately want this. And again, I use Miyazaki as my example. Miyazaki movies are about all sorts of different topics across decades, but they all feel like Miyazaki movies. So I'm okay with this movie being different from the original trilogy in fundamental ways, but it has to feel like Star Wars. It shouldn't feel like a modern movie, a modern reimagining of Star Wars. I want it to feel like Star Wars, at least just these three. After that, fine, then totally reimagine everything about it. But I want these three movies, seven, eight, and nine, to feel like Star Wars. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I agree. And there's, it is. It's almost like a branding thing, you know, that there was a certain way that the the original series just lacked bombastic scenes. I mean, I mean, like the 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 space battle in Return of the Jedi sort of, I think, set the set the stage for modern action movies, and it was so awesome at the time. And I do love it. It's one of the and it's one of my favorite things in the whole Return of the Jedi. It's fantastic, um, the way that the ships are so dynamic and the camera moves around and stuff like that. But it's it's if you just use a, a stopwatch and measure how much of the movie is taken up by that battle, it's actually very little because it was so incredibly hard for them to do it. You know, the, the computer control where everything was actually like a, an actual model. Um, and in the modern filmmaking where it's, once you have all this stuff set up, you can just let like a, you know, like it just, I like got the way that transformer movies work where they're really just two hour CGI chases through a you know where transformers are throwing themselves into skyscrapers <laughs> yeah and, and like you're trying to think about what is it that makes something feel like star wars a lot of it is uh the limitations of motion control cameras and and the you know the 70s and 80s right that that defined the look of the space battles because what could you do with the motion control camera we can do this move that move that move and this move and we can op optically composite them together and that kind of defines it but also stuff that didn't have anything to do with technology like how it's scored, how there's like music behind everything and how it's orchestral. Like that's not the modern way movies are scored. That is, that is an older way movies are scored. Like it's not, that's not done. And, and, you know, 
John Williams doesn't put an orchestra behind uh, the Transformers movie during right. like every scene. Like Star Wars movies are practically musicals for the amount of music that's in them. And the type of music is a weird old style of music. So you can go a long way towards making a movie feel like Star Wars without, you know, like, yes, you can do anything in CG, but make it feel kind of like Star Wars. And you can you can do a twist on it, like in the trailer that we both saw, the uh, the camera movement around the Millennium Falcon when it's doing all these strange maneuvers. You couldn't really do that feasibly with a motion drill camera, especially with the crazy backgrounds and everything. You can do it with CG, but in some sense, it still feels Star Wars because lots of those swoopy moves where the camera was following the ship and the ship was twirling around, this is just like that cranked up a little bit more. It is, it's the difference yeah. between that and like, the like the fancy the fancy way that han piloted the falcon into the asteroid crater in empire strikes yeah. back where it was like this exuberant like straight up straight down paperclip you know like you motion uh you know it's a show you know it's a show off type type a, of guy accompanied by an ascending and descending scale in the soundtrack from right. john williams with like the flutes or whatever right. going in there like that's totally a star wars type thing and uh, comparing it to like remember did you watch the Battlestar galactica reboot yeah i did uh remember they used to do the thing that made it look like the the vipers or whatever were being filmed by someone with a handheld camera far away so it would shake and then they would do the the really dramatic zoom in yeah because like yeah. to acquire the ship and then try to get it centered in the frame like someone trying to catch like a, a long hail mary pass like a, a yeah. bad uh, cameraman trying to say where the hell is the football oh, i got it zoom in uh they don't do that these days i saw that big hail mary and like they were had the camera back the whole time don't they follow the ball anymore whatever the no. hell happened to nfl films where you get to see the thing spiraling towards you where's that tech anyway um yeah, you can you can make something feel like Star Wars and be modern without making it look like Battlestar Galactica. Like all of a sudden, everything is handheld shaky cam, and there was shaky cam in the trailer. So I'm like, I'm not saying you can't use shaky cam; you totally can. I just, I just overall, I want the movie to feel like Star Wars. Right. And part of that to me is that it has to. You have to let certain scenes just just let them breathe and don't worry about whether there's a lot going on. Like, give us something that's a mystery. Give us something that's new. And then just let us figure it out. Like some of my favorite scenes in the original trilogy are just like R2 D2 by himself, just off in the desert on Tatooine, and you just slowly watch R2 D2 roll across the desert. But there's it it's engaging because you're like, well, what where the hell is this robot going? Yeah, and, and like Empire, my my favorite one, like there's there's so many scenes that end like with, with the mud being spit out. That's the end of, of that scene before they cut to a different one. It's like, right. but but wait, how does that conclude? It doesn't have to conclude with a line or an event or in a call to action. It can end right. with the feeling or just right. showing like, uh, some, you know, Yoda walking off into the misty swamp and Luke just saying, stay at the camp. Like, something else is going to happen, but you're left with the feeling. How are the characters feeling this morning? Are they dejected? Are they hopeful? Are they cautious? Are they afraid? Uh that's so much more important than ending every scene with a call to action that leads to the next scene. We have to do the whatever and then go show the whatever. And, you know, it's just... As I get excited about this movie, Amy keeps reminding me of um, the movie AI, and at, you know, which was uh, written by Stanley Kubrick. I think he even got a producer credit, but it came out after he, he had died. Um, but the, you know, the basic story is that it was a movie he had been, Kubrick had been developing for a long time, many years. 
and decided that he didn't want to direct it, that Spielberg should direct it because it needed a warmth, a, a human empathy that he knew that his movies lacked, that coldness would be the wrong way to approach it. And so he called up Steven Spielberg and said, you know, what, what do you think about that? I got this movie. Would you want to work with me? And Spielberg is a huge Kubrick fan, and they'd been friends over the phone for years. And it was like, okay. And then the poor guy died, but Spielberg made it anyway. And we're going to see it opening night, of course. I could not wait. And we're going to see it opening night. And I paused, and we had another friend with us, me, Amy, and my friend Don. And I just said, I just want to tell you guys, I just want to make a prediction right here. I think there's a very strong chance that we're about to see the greatest movie that's ever been made. (laughs) (laughs) Had you not seen any other Spielberg movies? Like, yeah, he's got human worth, but he's also a little sappy. (laughs) This is what I, that's what I said going into CAI. <laughs> Did you say this seriously? Or? I said it in all seriousness. I wanted it like I wanted the the being right points before we did it. <laughs> I said I think we might like, be going to. I boy. believe there's a good chance that we might be going to see the greatest movie that's ever been made. Oh, goodness. I mean, not that AI was incredibly terrible, but it was not. It 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 missed the mark. I think most people agree. I don't think it makes it. It's not a bad movie, but it is certainly bad given the pedigree of the the. Yeah. <laughs> filmmakers so that's why that's what amy keeps reminding me of with the force awakens well but you're not making strong predictions about no we're all just we're we're, we're cautiously optimistic but like this has everything going for it like the thing i think about in this movie that the things that have faded it to exist is i mean obviously the reason it exists at all is lucas sells gets him out of the picture so we don't have to worry about his picadillos messing with things you know what i mean yeah um and who do they get to direct it the guy who's basically admitted so many times before this, like that he's a super big Star Wars fan. Uh, like when he when he directed Star Trek, I'm like, well, that's kind of a shame because he's always said what a big Star Wars fan he is. And I'm sure he likes Star Trek. I'm sure he'll do a good job. But it, boy, wouldn't it be great if he could do Star Wars? But now that he's done Star Trek, there's no way he's going to do Star Wars because the right. same guy's not, not going to get the same guy to do Star Trek and Star Wars. Well, he got to like essentially warm up on the lesser franchise, Star Trek, right? And finally... and hone his craft over a, a series of movies and television shows over the years and that you could say like he's at the top of his game now fulfilling his childhood fantasy as anyone childhood you know childhood at similar age to direct a new star wars movie and he's the guy doing it right now i've heard there's been creative tensions between him and uh, other people who are running the franchise and that's kind of makes me worry about the future of this or whatever but like, boy, the stars really aligned for both us and J.J. Abrams to have. I like J.J. Abrams. I like his other movies. I like that he got to practice on Star Trek. And I really hope that he, like, uses all his skills and all his powers in the Godfather parlance to just, like, put everything he has into this, This you know, it's it's his childhood dreams as, long, as well as ours tied up into this movie. And I really hope it comes together. Yeah. So I, I'm optimistic. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> anyway. John Syracuse, thank you for your time. This has been extremely generous of you. We've gone on a long time. Yeah, Craig didn't take all my time. This would have been, you know. No, I told you you weren't going to get cheated out of time. You weren't. (laughs) John was worried when I asked him to do the show that he'd get shortchanged on time because of the the Craig Federighi segment. Not to worry. Yeah, we'll just make it a three-hour show. Whatever. Yeah, big, long, big, long, healthy. It's like a holiday meal. Big, long, healthy meal. Uh, I should thank all of our sponsors. We've got Harry's. Go to them. Buy their shaving stuff. Wealthfront, you can uh, invest your money. Squarespace, you can build your own website. And Casper, you can buy a mattress, which, I again, I'm telling you, what a holiday gift idea that would be. Uh, John Syracuse, you can find him on his uh, weekly podcast with the, the other guys, ATP. That's the Accidental Tech Podcast at ATP.fm. And he's... Uh, uh, just at Syracuse on Twitter. Anything else? No, I think you covered it. There we go. Thank you, John. Thank you.